So with it being the month of June, you're done hunting for the year, right? You're, I mean, you don't even have it on your plate. I know that you just tell me, take me through February to June. Is it mainly turkey hunting or are you, are you still trapping? What do you got going on that time of year? Yeah, I mean, February and March, pretty much trade show season for the most part. You know, we're doing some trade shows around the country. And then the latter part of March, we usually get into turkey season and that runs pretty much through May anymore. I mean, we start hunting in March and, and usually finish up sometime towards the latter part of May. And then like this year, we just got back from Canada from a bear hunt. Just a couple of weeks ago, we went up to Saskatchewan with some friends up there and uh, just finished that up. So that was an experience chasing bears around the Canadian bush for a week. The bush. The bush. And when you talk about, you say trade shows, you're talking, are you talking consumer shows? Or are you talking just industry shows? You know, there's a difference, right? You got the shot show, which is an industry show. It's not open to the public. And then you have a show like NWTF that we both go to every year in Nashville right. in February and it's open to the public. So are you doing both? Yeah, both. I mean, industry shows for us usually wraps up with shot show in January. You know, that shows usually the latter part of January. And then like February, for instance, this year we did, um, uh, the NRA show, and then we also did NWTF. Well, NRA was later on, but we did the Harrisburg um, show in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and then NWTF in Nashville, and then we went down to, what was it, Dallas, where we were at together? Yeah, I saw you in yep. Dallas. That was the NRA annual meetings. Right. But it, the the show in Harrisburg is also an NRA, NRA show. NRA show, right, exactly. So are these shows, do they wear you out? Do they get tedious, or is it something that you still look forward to going and seeing your cohorts? No, I, yeah, I, I look forward to it, man. I, I love going and seeing everybody and hanging out. And like, you know, for instance, this year, which you, you come over, Nate played a lot of music at NWTF and we threw that little event. I think it was on Friday night at NWTF and had all of our friends, you know, that was there at the show come out and just whether they were just, you know, regular friends of ours or our friends from the industry. I mean, we pretty much invited everybody and it was a good time. And I mean, that's what we look forward to is just getting to hang out, man. And I mean, that's, that's what we're all about, just, just hanging out with everybody and having fun. And at the end of the day, we're just normal couple rednecks. I mean, we, we, love to, uh, we love to hunt, no doubt about it, and lucky enough to have a television show where we get to do it for a living. But whether the show was there or not, we'd still be doing the same things that we're doing right now with or without the show. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's like, you know, those times in Nashville, you, you bring that up. And for example, you guys had your party. You had Morgan Mills playing there, and you had Nate Hosey, your partner in Headhunters TV there. You had Leith Lofton up on stage. You had several guys get up on stage that night. And then the next night, it was followed by our little get-together down at the Whiskey Bend on Broadway. That's right. And we had Jamie Johnson and Leith Lofton and a bunch of musicians again. And it's yep. I always talk about that, that hunting means a lot to me because it's the common denominator that brings all those different Everybody walks Everybody together. Alive. You know, and like you, you might never have anything else in common with somebody like Morgan Mills or Jamie Johnson. You know, he's a, they're celebrities, they're songwriters, they're musicians, they're, they're, they live in Nashville, they live that lifestyle. But when they're not doing the music thing, they're in the woods. That's right. Like it's crazy are. how much crossover there is between country music and hunting and the outdoor lifestyle. And it's cool because, I mean, and just like you, I mean, we've got to be friends with several country music artists, and it's cool to see them come from that walk of life and cross over into what we do on a daily basis and back and forth. You know, it's, it's just, it's neat to be able to hang out and get to be friends with those kind of guys and kind of see what they go through on their day-to-day -day lives. And uh, 
you know, and, and how it crosses over with what we do. Yeah. And that's what I was, you know, getting at is that you got this common denominator of the woods and hunting and the lifestyle, the campfires. And we, we, we don't really preach that, but we brag on it a lot because that's what means a lot to me when it comes to the hunting heritage and the hunting history and the hunting lifestyle is that there's no better way to get to know somebody than in camp or in a duck blind. Oh, or, no doubt about it, man. And that, that's what, you know, with our show, I've got so excited every year now of being able to go back and we always film a hometown show in deer season. Because for me, man, that's what, I mean, that's where it all started. That's, that's what started the fire in me to get me to where I am now is, is those, those campfires and those deer camps with your friends and your family. I can remember my grandpa and my dad, both of my grandpas, just being a, a little kid and just looking forward every year to being able to, to go to that camp. And, and my grandpa actually drove at one point. I had packed all of my stuff in their camper trailer and they, they took off and left me because they thought I was too young and they got there and they're unpacking the camper at deer camp and they found all of my stuff. And he's like, you know what? You got to go back and get that boy. So they, they went back and, and grabbed me from home. They drove like two hours and brought me to deer camp whenever, heck, I was probably just four or five years old. And, uh, you know, just, just remembering that kind of stuff and, and, and being a part of that at, at that young of an age is, like I said, I mean, that's what, man, that's what set the fire in me and and uh, it's still burning today. And so who do you accredit with, you know, driving that home? Was it your dad? Was it your grandpa? Was it a bunch? It was, was a, a common, it was a combination. It was, it was both of my grandpas and my dad. I mean, my dad, uh, you know, we grew up duck hunting from Southeast Missouri. We're right on the Arkansas line. So, so growing up duck hunting was huge for us. And my dad actually carried me to the rice field in a five gallon bucket. He would Whenever I was that little, he he would pack me Kool Aid and snacks in there, which I still that's where I'm I'm still liking the snacks today. But <laughs> he would he'd pack everything in there and uh, and carry tote me out there and and man just just getting getting you know involved in it and introduced that early in life. And then as I got a little bit older, I think I was seven. He started toting me out to Colorado every year. They we'd have a big elk camp out there every year, and uh, he'd pull me out of school for a week at a time and take me out there and. I mean, those trips and, and just getting introduced, like I said, and involved in it at that early of age, it, uh, man, it's something that, that never, never left me. And, and it, it really became who I was. Uh, you know, a lot of people start hunting later on in life and they kind of get introduced to it later in life. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But, uh, you know, for me, I'm just, I'm lucky and fortunate that I got introduced as early as I did. And it really became who I am today. Yeah. And you, you know, you talk about your grandpa and your dad and carrying you out in that five gallon bucket. And a lot of times you hear in our industry is get somebody new introduced, get somebody involved, get somebody in the woods, get a woman out there, get a kid, you know, introduce somebody new to the heritage of hunting. And it, it's almost like a, a proclamation or like an agenda that we're, we're constantly being reminded to get somebody new because, you know, hunting has that, that gnomer that, it could be in trouble if we don't get new people involved. Well, back in the day of our dads, our grandpas, it was the natural thing to do. And it still is. For it was everyday like, life. Yeah. And for you, it still is. And for a guy like me, it still is. We're constantly with our nieces and nephews or different kids around the neighborhood or introducing women or taking soldiers. And we're always trying to show how many benefits there truly are, are being in the woods or being in a duck blind, whether it's therapy, whether it's camaraderie, whether it's just tradition, hunting has always done that for us. So it's, it, I like the idea that we have these platforms and these initiatives to get somebody involved in the woods, because that's what we need to carry on. And it's terrible that it's come to that because back in the day, that's what you did. When your dad woke up, he was thinking, get in the truck and let's go. We're yeah, going. He didn't even think about it. I mean, it was just, it. it was just everyday life. And at, at some point, 
over the last few years, that's been forgotten about, you know, and it, there's so much negativity that surrounds what we do anymore. And I don't know where it came from or, or where it stems from, but I mean, we got to get back on track of, of what the heritage truly was and where it came from and get back to those roots because that's the only thing at the end of the day that's going to save us. I mean, it's, it's so important to get out there and to grow the sport and, uh, but it's not easy. I mean, we got so many things going against us these days and so much negative, um, just everything that, that surrounds us with the news and the media and everything that goes against us. I mean, it's a, it's a battle that that's, it's, it's not going to end. So we got to get on board and, and just do all we can from every angle to, uh, to try to help out any way we can. Yeah. And I think that, I think that a lot of the hunters that have it in their bloodline are aligned on the, on the message that we do need to protect our rights. We do need to protect our gun rights, our hunting rights. There's, there's a lot of things that go against the future of hunting, whether it's politics, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's just the general law or whether it's development, new homes being built, new commercials being built, new highways going through all of our, our hunting country. you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that you have to deal with to preserve that. And that's why it's, a blessing to be able to do it. It's not an entitlement because it truly could be taken away at any time. Any time, man. And that's what our dads and our trailblazers and the men that came before us were so instrumental in doing, whether it was Teddy Roosevelt, whether it's Ted Nugent. There's, there's a lot of different voices out there that help strong arm that movement of, hey, we need to make sure that our kids and our grandkids and their kids are hunting, whether it's 30, 40, 50 years down the road from now. And I think that if you look at it like... <laughs> Nothing's changed as far as our attitude, as far as our bloodline, but there has been a lot of changes in the way that the world works with the growth, the different views oh, in politics, Hundred percent. everything that goes into everyday society could battle hunting in a way, could battle conservation in a way. And that's why it's so important to get the new blood involved and be, and be part of Ducks Unlimited or Mule Deer Foundation or Whitetails Unlimited, that you're always working towards that conservation effort. And that's what I was getting at with you guys is that you know, I want to make sure that we introduce you the proper way, you guys. Today we're with Randy Birdsong on another great episode, I think, of uh, This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. Randy's a co-host, co the founder of Headhunters TV, his partner, Nate Hosey, who we all know, country music guy, um, the face paint guy, looks like the ultimate warrior when he's hunting turkeys <laughs> and whitetail. I'm always waiting for him to body slam Randy in every episode. But Headhunters TV it, 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 uh, is on the outdoor channel, just like the foul life is, and Randy and I have a lot in common as far as being in the industry, working in the industry, loving hunting and, and just, you know, the, every time we get together, we just cut up. So it's a, it's a pleasure having you on the, the show today, Randy. And I wanted to start off with, you know, we're talking about this conservation effort and this movement of getting new people involved. When I hear the name headhunters, I automatically think of trophy hunters. But then when I sit with you and Nate, I don't think that at all. You guys are trappers, you're predator hunters, you're, you cook wild game, you understand butchering and processing and cutting backstraps and tenderloins off the bone and preparing that as a bounty for your friends and family. Why the name headhunters? Because to me, that gives it the misnomer that you guys are just in it for the bone, the big heads, the Pope and Youngs, the Boone and Crockett's. That's not it, is it? No, not at all. I mean, whenever we, uh, whenever we first started the show, we, we really were just, we were trying to come up with a name that was catchy, uh, something that we could brand the show around. You know, we come in, this is our eighth season on the Outdoor Channel, so we come in at a pretty, at a pretty tough time, not as tough as it is now to get in the industry, but it was still a tough time. And, you know, just like, just like the name, like Michael Waddell uses bone collector. I mean, it's such a branding piece for everything that you do. And that's what we wanted to do is we wanted to come out with a name that was catchy enough 
that it, w- it, would, it would be able to be a brandable brand on everything and anything. And uh, really, we just want it to be a general, a general name. And we come up with headhunters because at the end of the day, there ain't much that we don't chase. You know, I mean, we just like you said, I mean, we love to do everything from, you know, I grew up trapping and, and duck hunting, squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting, deer hunting, turkey hunting. I mean, there ain't much that we don't do. And, and still to this day, um, we love it. So, yeah, no really, no no in particular reason as far as for the name. But uh, we're definitely not trophy hunters. You can watch our show and tell that. <laughs> so, I mean, you can... you. To be a trophy hunter, you know, there's guys that go out there and they won't kill a mule deer unless it's 180 inches or bigger. They won't shoot at a whitetail if it's not 180 inches or bigger. I think that, you know, you mentioned Waddell. One of the things that always turned me on about Michael on TV, and I still to this day will tell anybody that comes into my presence that he is absolutely the best TV personality of all time. In oh, he, yeah, TV. He's, he's awesome. And the reason, the reason he was to me is because he never gave me that impression that he was going to wait for a 180. If he yep. had a 140 walk under his tree stand, the reaction, the authenticity of what he did of pull the adrenaline and pulling back that bow and the heavy breathing and the panting and then the fist pumping and the, in the, you know, the way that he would get excited because he, he was so, so humbled to be in the woods and for him to be experiencing that stuff meant everything to him. Oh yeah. And, and that's what it just, all of that about Michael Waddell is what turned me on. And I see that with you and Nate is that yep. a turkey comes in and you guys, you, you, whether you're successful or not, you guys have that humility in the woods and the woods is something that can bring you to your knees in a heartbeat. Yeah. And I think, man, I think these days people get so wrapped up on their, their whole, their whole perception is, is the only thing that matters in that hunt is how big the animal is. And we, you know, Nate and I both, I mean, we're both on the same page that if that deer or that elk or, or whatever it is, when it, when that, when that animal walks in, if it means something to us, and it excites us and we get that feeling, we're going to shoot it. It don't have to be, we're not, we're not sitting there and drawing a line and saying, and saying, well, that deer's got to be 160 inches or he's got to be seven and a half or whatever it might be. At the end of the day, man, that's not where we come from. And I don't know, I don't know at what point it was that, that the industry has got to that point, but I don't know. I, I just, my, my opinion is that's not the, that's not the direction that I want to, that I want to go with it. And uh, I know for Nate and I both, I mean, we'll both tell you that that's definitely not who we are for sure. If, if that animal, like I said, if that animal comes in and excites us, we're, uh, we're rolling. So, so yeah, so it's safe to say that with head hunters, I mean, it doesn't matter if the head doesn't have horns on it. You guys are chasing, no. cause you, you guys do con- you guys do practice, you know, controlling your doe populations on the different farms that you own or have leased. And you guys do practice, you know, food plotting. You practice. I love your predator management. I love your trapping episodes. So when I hear the name head hunters, I want to make sure that everybody listening doesn't think that Nate Hosey and Randy Birdsong are just out there chasing big, heavy antler deer. Now it's it's nice when a big, you know, a big one eighty or one sixty five walks under your tree stand. Or Absolutely, a big moose but if that one twenty five walks through first, he's going to get an arrow just as quick as that one eighty. So are you up. are you admitting right now that you don't have a lot of patience? I mean, any deer you're you, you've been I, you've been around me enough to know <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of patience, and and you've been making fun of me all day for my attention span. You say is about five minutes long, if that. So. So, you know, that brings up a good point as far as attention span and being a whitetail hunter. It seems to me like you got to have a lot of different ways 
to keep yourself busy when you're sitting in a tree stand. And I've, I mean, I've never seen a grown man be on his phone as much as I've seen in the last, you know, couple 20, you know, the 24 hour period. Is it something that has saved you really having the access to all this social media, having the smartphone, being able to play games on your head? Oh, a hundred percent. I'm not going to the tree without an extra battery pack for my phone. And I ain't sitting all day cause I got to charge that rascal up at about dinner time. So yeah, I mean, for sure. I, it, it passes the time for me and, and I'm, I'm guilty and, you were calling me a millennial earlier, but I am pretty bad. I'll admit I, I've got pretty bad. And I think, I think everybody in, you know, to a certain extent, I, I watch Hosey too. Hosey's just the same way. He's always on his phone. And we both, we've had conversations about, man, we got to do, we got to do a better job about this. This is getting ridiculous, man. We're on our phones all the time, but it does at, at point, you know, whenever you're whitetail hunting, it's not always action packed. So it sometimes it's a, uh, it's nice to have that phone to be able to pull out, see what everybody else is doing or playing games, whatever, whatever you can do to pass the time. And I am, I'm, I'm guilty of it. I I'm on that phone a lot. seems like anymore, you know, anybody that's got a smartphone, is just attached to their, to their hand at all times. Is, is, is deer hunting that much fun? I love it. I mean, I know, you, you know, you come from the waterfowl background. Do you do a lot of deer hunting too or no? I have. And I mean, I felt myself getting pretty addicted. I, let me take that back. I have not done a lot of whitetail hunting and tree stand. I've done it for two seasons, bow getting into archery hunting. And I felt myself getting pretty addicted because, you know, they call them the ghosts of the woods and a big whitetail would just appear. And I liked that part of it. And I probably needed to set the bow down because I didn't want anything to take away from my duck hunting time. And I didn't need another hobby. So, yeah. But I, I, I often wonder, like, could I climb up into a tree 30 feet in the air by myself? I know you have a cameraman with you, but you're trying to be quiet. You're listening for leaves and branches breaking. You're controlling your scent. Um, you're making sure that you, you know, whether you have to go to the bathroom, whether you have to eat a snack. I mean, you got to prepare for all that. And, yeah. and I've seen all that go into it. And then, you, and then on the other side of the realm, and what I do is duck hunting. And we're cooking in the blind. And we have gravy going and ducks can't smell hooping and, and holler yeah we're hooping and hollering we're ribbing and we're and we're and we're cutting yeah. up and i just I, you know and i know that you and nate like to get on a duck hunt and you guys you guys hunted with my buddy josh alberius in arkansas this year i just i just can't figure out how somebody like you can sit in a tree stand for hours on end and wait for a deer to walk under your tree and it's got to be just that feeling that something any minute can happen that's it yeah i mean you're just always on edge and you never know that next 30 seconds, it could happen at any time. And, and I like whitetail hunting too, man, because it's so diverse as far as the different types of whitetail hunting. You know, early on in the season, one of my favorite things to do every year is to go out west and whitetail hunt because unlike the Midwest... You mean and, mule deer hunt? Nope, whitetail. In the west, like Yep, like, Mon- like Montana, Wyoming, different states like that. And the reason I love going out there early season like that versus like what we have in the Midwest is you can pattern those deer that time of year out there. You know, you got you got big high points, whether it's mountains or, you know, big hills that surround these irrigated alfalfa fields. And we'll go out, you know, a week before the hunt and take a, a spot and scope. And we're watching these deer from a mile away hit these fields and just kind of getting a pattern down on them, seeing what they're doing, seeing seeing what trees they're walking by every evening. And, and you kind of get an inventory of what shooters you have. And then you start actually you know i've named them before well there you know here comes so and so out and he's coming by this split cottonwood every evening you know and i'm i'm sitting there making a game plan in my head as far as waiting on the right weather pattern the, the right wind and then i'll slip in there and hang a stand and try to try to shoot that deer and just being able to kind of play cat and mouse with one like that and and to be able to to make your own game plan and to be able to go in there and do everything and make sure that you're 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 making every step right 
you know, and finally getting it done. It's, it's so rewarding at the end. I think that in itself is what makes it so fun and what keeps me, you know, hooked on whitetail hunting. And it's so much different versus the Midwest to where the Midwest, you know, you could kill a 200 inch deer at any time in the Midwest, but it's so much different hunting than that, that early season type stuff, because they're not as visible in the Midwest, you know, with the terrain and that time of year when we're normally hunting them in the rut in the Midwest, it's just kind of a sporadic movement. So, um, at that point, you know, you're just, you're trying to get in the right, the right funnel or, or the right pinch point and, uh, you know, hoping that doe drags him by. So it's just, it's, it's so diverse whitetail hunting is that there's, there's a little bit of something for everybody. And when you say you're hunting out West, you're, you're talking like Montana, Wyoming, Colorado. When I, when I hear West, mainly like, early season, when we're hunting whitetails, we're either hunting like Northeast Wyoming or we're hunting Southeast Montana. You know, that, that area right in there is, is where we've done most of our early season hunting. And Milk River? Nope. Nope. Usually on like the Powder River, um, Yellowstone River in that area in Montana. I've never, I've never actually hunted the Milk River. I've always wanted to, but, uh, you know, I, I grew up watching all the Realtree Monster Bucks videos and seeing those guys hunt the Milk River for years. But uh, a few years ago, man, they got just hammered with EHD up there. And it's really, it's taken, it's taken a toll on the whitetails up there. And they're just now, I guess, I was talking to some of the guys from Realtree because they still got leases up there. And I guess in just in the last couple of years, they're, they're starting to come back finally. But uh, I've never had a chance to hunt up there. I've always wanted to, though. You know, Milk River is just so, I mean, that's, that's notorious. I mean, everybody's heard of the Milk River in Montana. I've always just thought that maybe, you know, those deer come out of Canada. You know, they come out of Alberta and follow that river system down. I, I don't know. I'm just guessing because a lot of the deer that I've seen killed off of that Milk River area of Montana are big the, body. In big body. They replicate that right. Alberta looking deer. And, you know, you bring up Realtree and they're a common partner with both of us, you know, Bill Jordan and, and the David and, and Brad and Art and the entire team, Bill Harris, Tyler Drew. I mean, I can go on and on about those guys down there. You know, and that's another part of our industry that that I absolutely love is that you could partner up with somebody in our industry and consider them a business partner, consider them a quote-unquote sponsor. I like to consider them more than a sponsor because you do absolutely, so many yeah. more things than just take money from them or, or, or wear their camo pattern. But in our industry, you have a partnership with somebody like that. You're, you're on the ground level with them. You're in the woods with them. You're Absolutely. hunting with them and you're sharing that. You're, they're, they're, our office is the woods, right? So you could be out in the woods at any given time with Tyler Jordan or Bill Jordan. Bill founded you know, Real Tree Camo back in 1986 and he's built it into an empire. And there's not a better camo pattern out there, in my opinion, and obviously in a lot of people's not opinion. Not a better company. Not a better company. And they do their research in the field. They bring us into the field. And, and, and that's another part of this industry that I love, Randy, is that we can consider them a business partner, but we also can consider them a hunting, uh, you know, a hunting partner and, and share camp. Oh, absolutely. And friends at the end of the day. I mean, those guys, and that's, that's for us. And, you know, I'm sure you're the same way, but, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky, man, to have friendships with, with basically every partner that we have on the show. And that's the way it should be, man, because at the end of the day, this, this business and this industry was built on the good old boys. That's who built it. And just like, you know, I mean, that's, that's who we are at the end of the day. I mean, we're just normal everyday dudes at the end of the day. And, uh, it's nice to be able to be partnered with a company like Realtree that to where not only do you believe in the product, but you believe in the people that's behind it. And it's like you said, I mean, it's so much more, it's so much more than a sponsorship or a partnership at the end of the day. I mean, a company like Realtree, just like last year, you were down there whenever we did the, 
the big summit down there with everybody, and they brought in the whole team. I mean, everybody that represented Realtree was there, and it was just, it was, at the end of the day, it, you felt like you were a part of one huge family. And uh, that's, that's the kind of companies that, that we like to be a part of. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when, when people ask me, why do you film hunts? You know, because it's a pain in the ass. You have a camera crew and field production and uh, the lighting's not right. The shot's not there. Can I shoot? No, I don't have them on camera. Um, if it's cloudy, then the duck, it's got to be windy for the ducks fly. It's got to be sunny so they're prettier on film. And um, I like to tell a story. I like to have those memories of the hunt. I like to have a camera crew along. Yes, it can be tedious. And, you know, I have, you have to find some something to hang on to in your job in the way that you would make a livelihood because it's not always going to be perfect and having a camera crew is one of those things to where can it become a pain yeah but i always tell people here's what it does for me and one of the biggest things that i reach into and take out of it are those relationships and that if no you doubt. can if you could have real tree in camp or you can have benelli in camp or federal or whoever it is that's the things that turn me on. That's what keeps me motivated is what can we keep creating with our, our common bomb and our common thread with somebody like Bill Jordan. Right. And now he just introduced the edge pattern. We got to hunt with it all turkey season. We're getting ready to launch another pattern this fall that we're going to get the field test and be a part of. And that to me is what absolutely makes you know the the hair on the back of my neck stand up is like there's so much innovation that's That's the cool factor and we're getting to do it in the woods that's right in the duck blind yep no doubt and talking about you know talking about filming your hunts and stuff like that i mean that was one of the things man growing up that's one of the things that kind of set that fire in me to uh to eventually you know be where i'm at now and and to and to go after it is you know growing up my dad, he had just an old VHS camera, man. And I can remember going to a timber hole in Arkansas and dad would have that VHS camera on his shoulder, you know, trying to document everything. And he wasn't doing it for anything except for memories, you know, and, and just a few years ago, we went back and pulled some of all those old tapes out and we were watching them. And it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty funny to see where things have came, you know, from, from then to where it is now, but then to also be able to look back and to see you as a person, in those days, because, you know, whenever I was 18 years old, I'd, I would have never dreamed in a hundred years that I'd be sitting right here and, and have a television show that we're going on the eighth season on the outdoor channel, you know? So it's it, just, uh, just that in itself, you know, you talk about why we film or, or whatever, but it's, uh, it's super cool to me to be able to have those memories, man. And, and once they're documented, you got them for a lifetime. And what, what is your opinion on this is like, there, there's a lot of different ways to make outdoor TV. Do, the, do you think that there's a right way to do it? What is your, what is your I, goal I, when you go to make an episode? I have, I have my opinion on, uh, on what I like to see as a viewer and as a producer, but I don't think, I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, you know, everybody that does an outdoor television show needs to follow this cookie cutter mold because at the end of the day, everybody in itself has an opinion and every, and there's, you can line up a hundred producers on outdoor television and every one of them is going to be talented in different areas. And every one of them is going to have an idea of what they think an episode ought to look like. I know for me, just, just speaking for, you know, from experience, like for, for me, my opinion is whenever we go in to shoot an episode and to build an episode, and, and this has been our kind of our motto from the beginning of headhunters and kind of how we wanted to format our show is we wanted, we wanted to, to film and produce a show that was very well produced as far as from a quality aspect that had epic hunting in it, but also was entertaining and fast paced. 
And that, that is what I try to, to drive home in our guys, in our editors, in our producers on a daily basis is find that happy medium. Because you see shows every day on TV, a lot of them will be 100% epic and slow, you know. And if that's what works for you, if that's, if that's what you're into, good. Then you also see fast-paced, entertaining shows that don't have much of the, the you know, the high-quality, slow-motion, slower, epic stuff in them. But we want to try to we wanted to come in and kind of create a mold of having a hybrid version of that, and that's that's what we try to hit on. We want to, like I said, we want to have a, a high quality, epic hunting in it, and and you can slow that down from time to time, but then also have high speed, energetic parts in the show to where it keeps it moving. Because at the end of the day, that's kind of who we are. I mean, just like you said a while ago. I mean, you know how my attention span is. You know, you know how I roll. So. I'm I'm bouncing all over the but place. But there's there's so many moving parts of a TV show, of a TV production crew, of an editing company, of a production company. Um, you, you just the the maintenance that you have to have in, in with your partners and your sponsors, your social media, your 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 oh, showcase, yeah. your promotion. Web. There's there's so much that once you get into this part of that TV show, now you're like, oh my gosh. I got to get better at this. I got to get better at that. And then it, it becomes that driving force of the entrepreneurial spirit takes over. And if you do have a little bit of that business sense in you, there is a way to, to brand TV. There is a way to do it. But you're, it, the question I have for you is, you know, and I get, a, we get covered up with personal messages and we are humbled by them. We're humbled by our fans Absolutely. Pe- for people to take time out of their day to write us, a, you know, to get our opinion on something or ask us a question. How do you answer this question? Hey, Randy, I'm, I'm, I'm Chad Belding from, from Nevada. I, I watch your show and I'm a big fan. I really like what you and Nate are doing with Headhunters TV. How do I get my own hunting TV show? What should I do to get a job in the industry? You get that a lot, yeah? Oh, man, every, every day it seems like. And, you know, I know now, like, and the same as you, the industry's changed so much in the last 10 years since I got into it, uh, since we started Headhunters. But I would, hate to, I would hate to come in right now and have to try to, to build a television show off the ground this day and age. But at the end of the day, too, it can still be done. And, and I, don't, I, don't like to, I don't like to shoot down anybody's goals because for me, that was, I was that same guy 10 years ago whenever we were trying to get headhunters off the ground. You know? But my, my, I don't know, I think for me, I still think networking and relationships are more important than the actual show. That's my opinion. I, I feel like I feel like no matter what you're doing, who you're surrounding yourself with and your networking skills and your relationships will carry you the furthest whenever it comes to this industry. And now that doesn't, I'm not discrediting the fact that we don't try to produce the, the most high quality show that we do because, you know, obviously everybody tries to produce the best show they can. But I think the networking and the, the relationships is the most crucial part for anybody that was, that's either, that's either wanting to start up or somebody that's, that's a veteran of the industry. So you're saying that if I'm out of college, I'm 20, let's say I'm 24 years old and I want to get into this industry. The secret is a network in relationships. Cause that's exactly what I would tell somebody, but how, do you go about building that? How do you just get the guts to say, um, "Hey, this is so and so. I want. I was hoping your marketing department would look at this." Do you go to Shot Show and try to sneak in? Do you get a pass from a buddy that's got a connection with the company that gets you a badge? You go in and you go to you know the Real Tree booth, or you go to the Federal booth, or whatever, and you say, "Hey, here's my media kit." That was us. That's what we did. We started from that, and we had to keep clawing and building into that. But now it's just like. 
you know, all these guys that worked their ways up in the honky tonks in Nashville, but now you can go on and win a talent show and get a record deal like that. There are guys out there that have had found fame that have found, um, you know, an income of a livelihood with social media. There is ways to get content out there to people. I'm still a believer in TV. I'm still a believer in the outdoor network, the outdoor channel, the sportsman's channel. I like all that, but what would be the number one piece of advice? If I asked you straight up, how do I get my own show? How do I get my content? What would you tell somebody out there right now? Well, I think, I think right now, the way that things are, are evolving, I think right now that the easiest, you know, and most cost efficient way is the, is the digital media platform, whether it's YouTube, whether it's, you know, any really social media platform, I think you can grow your following on there. And then I think you can take that following, um, to somebody, you know, to the network or whatever it is. And you've already got that following to be able to show, uh, to potential partners and, you know, to build relationships off of to where I think that if you don't have that following, it's going to be hard this day and age to walk up to a real tree and say, Hey, I'm Randy Birdsong. I don't really have anything, any followers, but this is what I want to do and get them to buy into that. Because I think that day and age is long and gone. You really do. I do. I do. I think, I think that you, unless you have something that's just absolutely extraordinary and different. I think it's going to be hard without some kind of following built to be able to walk in and just basically cold call a company and get them to bite on it. So go out with a video camera, shoot some home video with a video camera and put it on YouTube is what you're saying. And well, hope that hopefully somebody subscribes and watches that. I, I think that you got it. I think you got to create a lot of content. I think you got to continually be creating content and you got to be doing it because you love it. Because at, at the beginning, you're not going to be making any kind of income off of it. So I think you got to build that library and, and hopefully have the talent, whether it's you or somebody else that's putting the stuff together. But it needs to be it needs to be high quality stuff, or you're not going to get those subscribers and you're not going to get those those watches and follows. So does the content weigh in heavier than the personality? Or is there such thing as a, as up and coming TV hosts that are going to be able to be, you know, the next Michael Waddell, the next T-Bone, the next Ted Nugent, the next Jim Shockey, the next Randy Birdsong? Are those individuals out there? Can you build that through I, social I, media? I think they're definitely, I think they're definitely out there, but I think there's always, I think there's always going to be both sides of the fence on that, just like there is today. I mean, we, we had that conversation this morning or yesterday, one but you can look at the outdoor channel and see the differences in personalities versus just high quality shows. There's a lot of shows that are very successful on the outdoor channel that doesn't have much personality behind them, but they're very well produced shows. And then there's, there's shows that's got, that might not be quite as high quality produced, but it's got extraordinary talent and host on them. And I think you can be successful in, in either one of those realms. I don't think that there's getting back to what we said a while ago. I don't think that there is one cookie cutter mold that says, Hey, this is, this is the only way to be successful in the outdoor television industry. Because I think, there's, I think there's such a wide variety of talent out there from a production standpoint, from a personality standpoint, that I think there's multiple ways that you could do it. It's just whatever works and whatever fits best for who you are. So if I put on, you know, we're, we got an episode that's 22 and a half minutes of content, then you have your commercial inventory. For those 22 and a half minutes, I'm just going to run a music video of birds dying is that is that going to cut it on today's outdoor TV? Is that going to get me started? Will will somebody have that wow factor like wow? Or is are people going to be like been there, done that? We've already seen that. We're looking for more than that now. Do you think the average viewer today wants to see an absolute slaughter fest on outdoor TV, or do you think that there's a good share of them out there that are looking for that story, looking for that common thread that they can relate to? 
Or do they just want to be wowed all the time? Because the way I look at it is that I get to hunt a lot of places that, you know, a, a, a lot of people per se might not ever get to hunt. We do. We're humbled that we get invited to a lot of these places. So do I just put that in their face all the time? Like, hey, here we are again, shooting tons of green-headed ducks. And here, here's Randy and Nate again. They got the best turkey leases in, in Missouri and Pennsylvania handed to them on a silver platter. Or do you want to build something more into it? Because a monkey could kill a turkey where you hunt, Randy. <laughs> That's what they tell me. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I, I'm going to go back to, to what I said earlier. I mean, the same way, you know, my opinion is, is just how we build our show is I think that, I think you need to have a combination of both. I, I think you need to have the great, the great hunt footage, but I also think that you need to have good personality in there. I think that's always going to, and there needs to be some kind of story within it. Um, I think if you can nail all of those, then you've got a, you've got a program that's going to keep people from turning the channel. And that's, that's how we've, uh, that's how we've built our brand. And, and I'm not saying that's, that's the right way, the wrong way, but that's my opinion on, on what I think. So then back to that question of that kid, you know, contacting Randy Birdsong and asked him how to get started. You're, you're, and I, I think can tell you how I got started. I, well, hold on. I just think that that's a good answer is we have the ability now to go out and get a camera. There's affordable stuff out there, whether you buy it used, whether For you sure. buy it brand new, go out and start documenting your hunts. Go out and think outside the box. Maybe be creative. May, but there for sure is a way to get that content seen. Now, the next step of that is how do you let the people out there know that your content's there? So that's the other trick to this trade is like, in my opinion, is that the marketing behind getting people's eyeballs on that is so important. And I think that in today's world of outdoor TV or any kind of action sports or anything that you're looking for a partnership, I think that they're looking for a company that's going to drive that marketing. How are you going to get eyeballs on your show? Somebody like, in my opinion, like Realtree is going to be more apt to partnering with somebody like Randy Birdsong. If you and Nate went with them and said, hey, here's our library of footage. But on, besides that, here's our plan of attack and our platform and our initiatives for getting people's to watch it. We're going to have a print ad campaign. We're going to do digital campaigns. We're going to create Facebook ads, whatever it is. To me, there's a whole business approach that goes oh, into this now, right? You yeah. can't just go to somebody and say, hey, here's my outdoor footage because there's footage everywhere. You can get content everywhere. Yeah. It goes back. I think it goes right back to relationships. Like I said a while ago that, you know, the biggest, I think one of the biggest things that you could, you could do as you try to, you know, align yourself and get into this industry is to align yourself with the right companies, the right partners that has those platforms to be able to launch you and your brand off of. And then as well, as well as that, you still, I mean, it still comes back to your own personal growth too. You've got to grow, you've got to grow your own personality as far as on social media. I mean, you've got a, you've got a free platform right there to grow yourself off of. And I think it's a, I, just like we said a while ago, there's, there's a lot of spokes to the wheel that's got to fall in place you know, between your own, your own social media and then aligning yourself with the right partners that's got the right platforms to be able to help give you that extra boost. Because just like you said, I mean, you go to a company like Realtree, Realtree's got such a huge following and such a huge brand that they've grown for, you know, what, 30 years now? And, and to be able to align yourself with a company like that and to be able to use each other each other's assets to be able to grow off of that's what it takes because because just being able to go out as an individual anymore and to be able to start from ground zero i'm not saying you can't do it but it's going to take some time and some effort for sure so how long have you been with realtree 
How long have they been a part of Headhunters? Since the beginning. Okay, so tell me the story. I want to know how did Headhunters so, come, and so, how did and I want to know that first meeting with Realtree and how that all went down. Well, so Nate Hosey and I were the guys that was sneaking into the archery trade show, trying not to get tased as we as we snuck through the door because we didn't know anybody, you know. And we got we actually got hooked up. I had the idea to start Headhunters. I started with Don and Candy Kiske that does Whitetail Freaks on the Outdoor Channel. That's who I actually started in the industry with filming with them and uh that was before whitetail freaks was ever a television show they were still doing just dvds at the end of the day and uh they had an idea for a television show that they were going to do whitetail freaks and uh they kind of collaborated with lee and tiffany on that and they started it and jason bosa and i we were both filming and hunting in illinois and we teamed up and we were one of the four teams on whitetail freaks the first I guess I did, I think I did Whitetail Freaks, the television show for three or four years. So I kind of already had that relationship with Realtree uh, from working with them through Whitetail Freaks, as well as, you know, other other companies in the industry as well. But I wanted to do, at the, at the time I was doing Whitetail Freaks, I was going to college at SIU and I was getting a degree in business. And I knew all along that Whenever I got out, I was going to be at a crossroads. It was going to be a point in my life to where, you know, hey, I either had to, I either had to try to make a living at this thing or kind of hang it up and just do it as a hobby on the side and, and, and take on a regular job. And just like you and I talk, there ain't, that ain't, that ain't no fun. So I wanted to figure out how to make it work, you know, and I didn't come from, I didn't come from a, a rich family. I, I didn't have a rich mom and dad that, that could buy my way in. Uh, and I honestly, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. But I knew I wanted to do it. And and ever since I was a, a little kid, man, I can remember I was just so ate up with, with videoing and, and just watching watching deer videos. And I can remember working. My grandparents owned a little little farm and feed store right there in our hometown. And I worked in there in the summer times when I was off of school. And that's when the that's when all the new jewelry videos and the Monster Bucks videos and, and everything would come out in the summertime. And I can remember ordering those VHS tapes. And, and looking out the door, waiting on that UPS guy to roll in there. And as soon as that UPS guy would roll in there, I would literally get the box. And my grandparents lived next door to the feed store. And I would sprint across the driveway. I mean, as fast as I could go with that box in hand to get to that TV, to throw that VHS tape in there and to watch it. And I'd just be glued, you know. And I knew, man, from that early age, that is what I wanted to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know anybody to help me get in. But I knew one way or the other that I was going to go for it. So I worked every summer in that feed store, saving up my money. And when I got out of high school, I, I bought my first uh, VHS camera and uh, I filmed, I filmed a little bit and then I got a better camera. I think it was a XL one or something like that. And I filmed, just filmed buddies. I, I'd get my dad to film me every once in a while. And I did that for a couple years and I kind of put all my stuff together and fast forward to the ATA show. I got in there and I met Don and Candy Kiske, and I think it was Jay Gregory, and I gave, I had two VHS tapes with me, I gave both of them a VHS tape, and I, I told them who I was and, and what I wanted to do, and gave them my number and said, hey, you know, if there's ever, if there's ever any chance to do anything, I'd love to, I'd love to be a part of what you're doing, and a couple weeks later is when Candy called me and said, hey, you know, we can't really, we don't really have anything to offer you, but if you're going to film this year anyway and you get some stuff, we'd be willing to use it, so that's kind of how that all started with them. And uh, like I said, I did that for three or four years, and then that turned into Whitetail Freaks. And then as I was getting out of college, I was, I was at that crossroads of, of having to make a choice. And about that time is when I ran into Nate Hosey. I was doing a show in Pennsylvania. He was at the same show, and we just got to be buddies and started hanging out. And I kind of, 
I kind of let him in on what I was thinking and what I wanted to do. And he was, at the time, he was doing some stuff with Hunter Specialties. And uh, he was kind of wanting to do something else as well. And we kind of collaborated. And that's where the idea of Headhunters come about. And uh, that's, that's kind of how it all, that's kind of how it all shook out. So then we went to the ATA show and, you know, started working on sponsors and this and that. And here we are now. So it was a, it's kind of a Cinderella story, I guess. So you had a contact at Realtree through your days with the Kitskis and, and, and Whitetail Freaks? I, I did. Like I, I knew, I knew David uh, fairly well and uh, I had met Bill a few times. So I knew him, I knew him slightly. I, I didn't have a great, you know, close relationship yet, but I did. I did have a, a relationship. So there. you worked your way up like that country singer in the honky tonks that I always often refer to is you were a cameraman. You, yep. you were filming yourself. You were trying to get video and content to these guys that could get it out on their platform. The Kitskis entrusted in you. Obviously you were doing a good enough job because they wanted a quality product to put out there. They weren't just going to take some footage of, you know, a dark shot on a deer or a out of focus deal. So you guys obviously had some talent going into it and you use that network and that ability to, develop that relationship with somebody like Mr. David Blanton or somebody right. else down in Georgia at Realtree and voila, here we are. Now I'm presenting y'all with a media kit and a, and a scope of work for my own TV production and, and show headhunters. Here's my co-host, Nate Hosey. Um, I met him at a WWE wrestling show. He's a, <laughs> he's a huge fan of the ultimate he hit me over the back with a chair. <laughs> he, he, uh, he George, the animal steal me, but, and that's what it is. And that's what it takes is that back to that question about that kid that writes in how do I get my own show? How do I work in this industry? And what I try to tell them is this. I don't say go out and film a bunch of stuff and try to get your content out there. I tell them, um, and, and it may sound ridiculous. It probably sounds like their dad telling them, but I truly feel that going to college is, is a plus for the main reason of it teaches you to build that network. College teaches you to juggle. It teaches you to have relationships with your professors. It teaches you how to be a self-starter because nobody's waking you up to go to class. If you skip class you gotta in college, you got to be driven, man. You got to be driven. And that's what college taught me, playing baseball in college and being away from my parents and being away from home for the first time. It taught me like, hey, I'm here. People are spending money for me to be here. Whether I got to be my, a grow up. Now. Right. So now I got to get up on time. I got to be to morning weights. I got to be to eight o'clock class. I got to be here. I got to do that. And then I started to form friendships with professors and then, you know, and then all of a sudden you, you, you I was friendships, friends with my baseball coach. And, and I started to build that network way back in the day. And that led to different jobs and in, in different areas once I got out of college. And I think that that's the most important part of coming up in this industry is being able to juggle. Because if you're going to be successful in any part of this, you have to juggle a lot of irons yep. in that fire. And be, learn how to build a network. Learn how to develop a responsible line of conversation, of communication with somebody, transparency you gotta with somebody. you got to be able to walk up and be able to shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye and be able yeah. to talk to them. Because if they're going to want you to fly the flag of their company, be an ambassador, a representative of their brand, of their company, or their product you're going to want them to know you straight up and That's you don't right. want any like hidden secrets out there of, Hey, you know, this is just me on camera. This isn't the real me. And I hear a lot of people say that the best TV show hosts are those guys that you meet in real life. And they're the exact same as the ones that you see, you see on, on TV. TV. And I think that that's really important, but I think that as far as the business part of it, what I would tell somebody is get your education, learn how to network, learn how to communicate, Learn how to be task oriented, short goal, you know, have short term goals and long term goals. And once you start doing all that, be disciplined. You know, it's almost like that athletic mindset. We both know you're a baseball player. Your brother just was named an All-American. Congratulations on that. Um, and congratulations to Katie Cook out there for landing that man. <laughs> Little shout out, Katie Cook. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm saying is that if you get that stuff down, 
And now you can go out and become, and you're a good hunter already because there's a lot of good hunters that might not necessarily be good businessmen. There's a lot of good businessmen that can do all that networking that couldn't pull back a bow and hit a deer to save their lives. So there's a balance there. No, you're so, exactly But right. if you have this part handled and you learn this part and educate yourself in this part, but you still have honed your skills as a hunter and as a, a game caller, as a conservationist, as a, as, a, as a butcher and a processor and all that, and you mix it with this stuff that you learned in college and networking and responsibility and discipline, now you have the recipe to go out and say, hey, Mr. Jordan, I think it's Jordan. I said Jordan to Tyler in Arkansas. Holy <laughs> shit, did I get my head ripped? Oh, yeah, it's Jordan. <laughs> it's Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> and I love Tyler. Tyler, if you're listening, buddy, I love you like a brother. But you know, now you have this thing to walk up to somebody in the industry and go, here's what we have to offer. And when they hear you speak, when they hear your it manners. Just makes, it makes you more well-rounded as a person, man. I, yeah. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I mean, and that was my, that was my whole thing is, is I, was, I was filming and I was doing whitetail freaks the whole time I was going to college. And my, my thing was is I did not want to just drop off the college wagon and just go for it without having that foundation because you've got to have that foundation, man. you got to have it. And uh, I was like the Van Wilder of college. I mean, it took me like... It took me like eight years to get a four-year degree. So you're a doctor. No, I wish. I just got a bachelor degree. <laughs> but but uh, the, whole, the reason it took me so long is because I was, filming, I was filming in the fall and going to school in the spring. So the whole, time, the whole time I was filming for Whitetail Freaks, I was going to school and getting my degree in the spring. So it took me eight years to get that four-year degree. But whenever it was, when it was all said and done, just like you were saying about juggling, whenever I was done at the end of eight years... I had a degree in finance and I also had a platform in the outdoor industry and to be able to launch myself off and, and be able to launch my career off of. And I, like I said, man, I couldn't agree with what you said a second ago anymore. I think you're, I think you're spot on on that because it just, it, it teaches you to not only be able to juggle things, but like I said, it teaches you to be a more well-rounded person and individual with a great foundation. And that's what it takes. Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about, you know, the curriculum of a college course or, you know, and there's some of that in high school, but high school and college are totally different. Oh yeah. You know, there's, there's a complete, there's, there's guys that do go to college and then go, go to secondary education and become, you know, high powered attorneys and doctors and, you know, PhDs. There's a lot of different ways and levels that you can take your education to. But I think that as far as me, what I got out of college and I do have, you know, I have a bachelor's degree and I, I appreciate everything that I learned through those courses. I think that all of them served a purpose, but I don't think, I don't think that they served a ton of purpose in every area that I needed it. And I think that there were some things that I could have learned better. But what I did pride myself on is that and from that day when I was 18 years old on, I really wanted to learn how to network. I wanted to learn the art of negotiation whether it was going to a professor and saying, Hey man, I just got off a 10 day road trip. I don't, I, can I get a couple more days to get this report to you? You know, I've been slacking off on it cause I've been trying to get my batting average up and, you know, learning, you know, trying to make him laugh or find common bond with that, that, right. that, you know, whether it was, was skateboarding or, or sailing or whatever it was, try to find that common thread with that professor to, you know, to establish that credibility with them and then take it to, yeah, I trust you that you're going to get in. You could have a couple more days. Thanks for coming with me. Thanks for being honest that you've been slacking. You got to be relatable. Yeah. And you it, gotta, it's and, just, it's just like hosting a television show, man. Like you got to be relatable and people's got to be able, they, they got to be able to bond with you. I mean, so what if there's a business plan here to where we can write a book on how to get your own outdoor TV show? And we just came up with chapter one. 
I, I think it's there, man. Think about it. I mean, we could be millionaires. Because then when somebody writes in on social media and says, how do I do it? Then you can lead them to a website to buy your book, and now you're making money again. Exactly. That was a dumb. We don't <laughs> want to do that. That was free advice. But I think that there's something to be said in that, Randy. I think that if you really break it down, you really started to establish those skills a lot longer than we think we did. Mm-hmm. And when I get these guys that, you know, and I've had guys of every shape and size, every age, ask me, hey, I want to do what you're doing. you got a dream job. Yeah, we do. It's no secret. Like to be able to make a living in the outdoors, if you love to hunt, as long as you do it right. And as long as you're, you know, building towards what you said, that brand and having different initiatives going on, it's going to take exactly what we just discussed the last 15 minutes to make all of that happen. And in, in, in today's outdoor TV, outdoor industry, it's never been more evident that you have to be hitting on way more cylinders than oh, yeah. just putting 22 minutes of TV on a week on the outdoor channel. You have to no be, doubt. you have to be so goal oriented right now with these partners, with people that want you to fly their brand or what we call a, a sponsor or being an ambassador you have to be hitting on way more cylinders yeah. than just a TV host. You have, you have to be a businessman in today's world to make it. I no, think. no doubt. I mean, the television show can be the, it can be the center, center of the wheel, but you got a lot of spokes coming off of that. That's got to be hitting on all cylinders. Just like you said. I mean, and there's, there's so, you know, 10 years ago, television was king and social media was, was barely, I don't even know if it exists 10 years ago. But now it's become such a big part of what everybody does, what all these these partners and all these companies do, that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts to what we do that's got to be that's got to be hitting just like you said. What is what is the the next step you think with with what you're doing? I know that you guys are are already established on TV. Are you established in social media? Yeah, I think we're established on, on social media, but we've got we've got plans just as I know that you do to to really step up that side on the digital side and, and just to be able to, to be able to get more unique content out there outside of what we're doing on the television show, because man, there's so much, there's so much more stuff that I think that, that the audience would like to see um, that we can't put on the show that we don't have room for with what we're doing with outdoor channel and, and MOTV. And, and I think that, uh, I think there's room to grow there, um, you know, between, between what I do on the on the predator control side and, and what what extra stuff we do on the hunting side and then what Hosey's doing on the music side, there's a lot of story there of who we are that's not getting told, and uh, and I think there's a there's a lot of room for growth on the digital media side that we could really hit on that'll uh, that'll help grow that platform for us. Do you take a lot of a lot of well, I don't want to say the S word, but do you take a lot of slack for? When you say predator management, when you air those episodes, you know, it's, it's crazy because I was, I was so hesitant and worried last year. Last year was the first year that we ever put it on TV and North American whitetail come down and and they wanted to do a two part series with us, um, with me trapping. And we did that and we shot it and our guys, our guys actually, uh, they shot all the, all the footage for it. And then North American whitetail edited it into two episodes. I think they had like a half an episode on two different shows is what they did. And then we put a half a episode together for our own show for headhunters. And I was so hesitant to put it out there because trapping is, is man, it's just a very touchy subject. And it's something that I've done ever since I was a kid and, and a part of who I am, but it's man, the, the, the world that we live in this day and age is everybody everybody's on pins and needles at at all times and everybody has an opinion and now with social media they got a platform to be able to put that opinion out there 
And I was hesitant to put it out there, but you know, that was, that was the most talked about and most response on any show that we've ever had was the trapping piece that we done. So we come back this year and we filmed a whole, a whole nother, uh, whole nother trip. So we're going to have some more trapping this year on, on the show. And then also probably use a lot of that on the digital media side as well. We have, you know, we have dead dog walking. We've been, we've aired trapping episodes. We've aired mountain lion episodes where you tree them with a dog. We've aired bobcat episodes. We've aired calling in coyotes mm-hmm. and shooting them with a 12 gauge. I don't say sorry for any of it. I understand predator management. I understand what predators do to our wildlife populations, whether it's the wolves on the elk, whether it's Yep. the skunks on a, on a, on a, on a duck's nest of eggs. So I think that the number one most important thing to get out there in, in my opinion is that hunters first and foremost are conservationists and animal lovers. And the compassion that we have for animals doesn't stop. And I, and nothing pisses me off more than when I hear people say, I hate coyotes. Now, if it's a cattle rancher in Wyoming or Montana and their, their herd is getting smoked by a bunch of, a pack of coyotes and a farmer says, I hate them damn coyotes, man, because they're cutting into his livelihood. Right. Well, that's where predator management comes in. Whether it's the government flying for them, whether it's Randy Birdsong going up and setting a trap line for them, or whether it's my brother Clinton Clay going up there and calling them in. The number one thing that I like to get across is that when I walk up on an animal in a trap or a snare, or the, when I call an animal in and, and dispatch it, of course I have sadness. Of course I have compassion for the animal. I don't look at it like a murder. I don't look at it like raw, raw, look at me, you're in a trap. And, and that's what I always like to get across is that I do get sad. When I see a mountain lion in a tree, I understand what he's done to that mule deer population. I understand the importance of taking some out of the ecosystem and out of the, out of the food chain. I get that part of it. And that's why I'm a hunter. But I also get sad when I look up in that tree and see him and know that his life is about to end and that we just worked hard with our dogs and our dogs were good enough to tree him and all of that. It doesn't take much to kill a mountain lion in a tree at 25 yards with a 270 or a 22-250 or whatever caliber you're using or a bow or whatever you're using. So I like to get that message across as a trapper, as a, as a predator hunter that we don't hate coyotes. I got nothing but mad respect for a coyote. They're the most adaptable oh, animal in the world. I don't the hate smartest animals in the world. I think bobcats are gorgeous. I think they're, they're, you know, they're, but the havoc that they, everything, have, everything has its place. Right. And that's life. what I want to get across is that it, uh, predator hunting is not about, you know, going out and killing a, an animal and letting it lay or skinning it and selling the fur at a fur trade. A lot of people make their livelihood in fur trades. And I don't look down on that. People have been wearing fur for hundreds of years, way before I was here, way before my dad was here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to stop that. So the voice out there of these antis that say predator hunting is bad and you're just killing them to be killing them. No, we're not. There's a lot of compassion there. There's a lot of respect there, but Absolutely. there's also a lot of education there. We understand more than anybody what it means to take predators out because sooner or later they're going to develop disease. They're going to get the mange. They're going to spread that disease to other animal populations, or they're going to wreak havoc on them by eating way too many of them. Yep. So you mix that in with the adrenaline rush and the fun and, the, and, and introducing new people to the sport and going out and honing your skills as a predator hunter and, and learning how to communicate and, and speak the vocabulary of a, of, a, of a bobcat to get him to come in or of a coyote to get him to come in. That's awesome. But first and foremost, there is compassion there. Am I right? Oh, 100%, man. I mean, like I said, everything, everything has a place in life, but at the, at the end of the day, they've got to be managed too. And a predator is... You know, a predator's on the top of the food chain. There ain't nothing out there that's hunting a coyote that we have. And, you know, I seen it. I seen it a couple years ago. We've got a, 
my cousin actually has an enclosure there in Missouri, a deer enclosure, and it's like 800 acres. And they got to the point where they couldn't even raise a fawn in there, you know, and the, the coyote population had just exploded. And they went in there and they trapped that place for about three years. They hit, they hit the coyotes pretty hard for about three years, and their fawn crop just absolutely exploded after that. And, you know, it goes to show you right there, I mean, you're not seeing that in the wild, but it's, it's happening. It's happening there just like it is in that 800 acre enclosure. So everything, you know, everything's got to be managed to a certain extent. And it, it doesn't have anything to do with us, you know, not loving that animal or not liking coyotes or not liking bobcats. It's just, it's a part of something that's got to be done for the, the whole overall good of everything. So tell me this real quick, and I'm not getting off subject here, but I, I've, I've always wanted to ask a deer hunter, and you are, to me, you're a whitetail hunter. You guys have killed a lot of big whitetail. You've shown people um, through your content that you guys do know what you're doing. You have credibility, in my opinion, as a deer hunter. What does doe management do for a, a herd, and why do they do it? Why do you say, like in Alabama, you can kill a deer a day for 60 days. There's some states that you can kill two bucks and five does, what, why is it important to a plot of land to keep your does in check? That's, uh, this is an argument that, uh, man, there's so many different opinions on it, but I'll, I'll just kind of give you my opinion on it. You know, if you take, a, if you take a, a certain plot of land, that plot of land, number one, is only going to maintain and, and, and be, able, be able to hold so many deer and, and to be able to grow so many deer. There's only going to be so much food there. So number one, you've got to maintain that whole overall number for the, you know, for the nutrition side of things. And then two, what I see a lot is in an area that's got an overpopulation of does or the buck to doe ratio is out of whack where they're, where they're not doing a good job of controlling the doe numbers is the bucks during the rut will absolutely just, they'll breed themselves down and run themselves down to nothing. So coming out of that rut, your bucks are in such bad shape that going into the growing season, it just sets them back so far. And, and a lot of times that's why, that's why you'll see your, your big mature deer, they won't make the kind of antler jumps that they should from year to year. It's almost like it stunts them because they're so ran down from that buck to dope ratio being out of whack that they're just, they're out of shape and, and going into the growing season, they just don't do what they need to do. And also from, from a hunting standpoint, um, what I've noticed big over the last few years, especially on our place is when you get that buck to doe, you know, obviously you want to try to get that buck to doe ratio as close to one to one as you can. A lot of times it's, it's way out of whack, but the closer you can get that buck to doe ratio to one to one, your rut and your, your activity, your daylight activity and your, and your big mature deer on their feet is just going to go through the roof because now all of a sudden there's, there's an actual seek phase to the rut to where these deer have got to get on their feet to find those estrus does to where if, if your buck to doe ratio is out of whack and you've got six does to every buck and you've got six does coming in heat at the same time for every buck you have they're not having to, there's there's no seeking phase they're standing up they're finding these does and they're locking down they're, they're right there with them so getting that buck to doe ratio as close to one to one as you can it's just going to make your whole overall hunting and what you're seeing on their feet you know so much better so does it benefit the health of the herd though as well oh absolutely it benefits but you just told me that the first reason is because well, the their first, horn growth could be stunted. Well, nutrition the uh, plot of land's only going to hold and be able to maintain and sustain that makes sense a, a certain amount there's only going to be so much food there so whenever whenever you you know when you cram that many deer on that particular place and it's only got that much food they're not getting what they need to and uh so that your whole overall her uh, health is going to go down in the herd and then like i said i mean there's there's too many does 
for the amount of bucks that you have so that your bucks are going to come out of the rut, ran down. They're not going to make the kind of antler jumps that they should. And then also your hunting quality is going to go down because you've got too many estrus does that's popping in the heat at one time for the amount of mature deer you got. So they're going to be locked down and you're not going to see, you know, a lot of places you'll see a good rut in November, but on places at the buck to doe ratio, there's, there's hardly, you hardly see any rutting activity. So something like the QDMA, which stands for quality <clears throat> deer management <clears throat> association, mm-hmm. you work with them? Uh, we don't work directly with them. So do you think that if I asked a biologist or somebody that works for the QDMA about their opinion on doe or predator management, doe management, herd management, everything that you just talked about the last seven or eight minutes, they're going to agree with you for the most part, for the most part is that there is a way that, will they say, first of all, yes, you have to control your predators. Yes or no? I think so. Yeah. And would they say you got to control your does? I think so. You really do? I do. So when you say QDMA and there is a way to, you know, to manage your deer herd um that's not going out on out in the wild though right so like you're taking these private pieces of property and that's where they're being managed so is there an argument on the other side of the spectrum randy that deer have been here for thousands of years and they're they're not being qdma'd out there or are these practices being you know practiced out in the wild are they being are there conservation groups or is the qdma actually going out to where these where these plots of land that aren't owned by a hunter or a guy that's growing food plots you kind of see where i'm going with that if, if if it's not broke why fix it is it just being done on these lands for the development of killing big deer and having a healthy herd on those private leases or private properties or does it actually benefit the herd as a whole that's all i'm going that's where i'm going well with. i think i think your i think your conservation department um, in each state, I think to a certain extent, they're trying to manage that way as well. I mean, I think the whole overall goal, no matter if it's QDMA or if it's your, if your state uh, conservation department, I think everybody to a certain extent is trying to manage it for the whole overall herd. I think everybody's on the same page on that. And you think, but that- I think, I think the QDMA, I think, I think, you know, if, if I, if I'm understanding your question, right, I think the QDMA I think is probably more focused towards that private landowner and what he's trying to do with a particular piece of property. So that's what they concentrate on is that like if I, I own some property and I want to make my herd stronger and healthier. And- yeah, I would say they're definitely, I'd say they're definitely more aligned with the private landowner for sure. Yeah. I've always wondered that is like, is QDMA somebody that's this, like this private sector that you go and pay to come and manage your land? Because there's, there's companies out there that do that for duck properties. Yep. You know, there's so much money in, in outdoor um, or wildlife real estate right now and people buying up land to turn into hunting properties. And that's awesome. I mean, if you have the money to do it and the resources to do it, then do it. That's your right as an American to do it. Now, there's also the mindset of, well, what about our public lands? Keep our public lands public. And I totally agree with that too. I don't think that we need to wipe off every public hunting opportunity or public recreational opportunity for the sake of the rich man or the sake of the dollar. And I'm not saying that this isn't free enterprise and that the guy with the money is going to be able to go out and buy some property. But I honestly feel that one of the main reasons or the main ways to keep people interested in hunting is giving them, them opportunity. Yep. You got to have opportunity. And, and 90% of the hunters out there are never going to be able to afford their own land. That might be a high number. But I would say it's going to be a pretty good amount of people out there that are never going to be. I agree with you. So you got to have that opportunity. So there's a fine balance in all of that. I'm going to go buy land and I'm going to turn it like what Lee and Tiffany have done. They manage and 
their, their deer herd and their properties and their geniuses when they come to it. Don and Kendi and the, and the Kitskis, they have done the same thing. The Drury's, the, all of these guys that we talk about in our industry, the Jordans, everybody, more power to them. They're doing it right. They're, 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 it's great for conservation. But we also have to keep in mind that our customer, our fan, our end consumer, the people that we're counting on of paying our livelihood – we have to have, keep an open mind. We got to hey, have a playground for them. Yeah, there's got to be that. There's yeah. got to be places. And shoot, out there I was that same person, man. Like, and that's that's one of the things that I see. You know, some that we get is is every once in a while. You know, we'll get some some negative feedback. Like, oh man, y'all y'all just you know you get to hunt the best places in the world. You get to hunt with on the best ground, and and you hunt with these outfitters and this and that. And man, what people don't realize by watching the show and and who we are is, I grew up. I grew up hunting public ground. I didn't come from a family that had thousands upon thousands of acres for me to hunt on. I, I grew up deer hunting on public ground. That's where I learned to hunt at. And, you know, fortunately for me is, is I've kind of, I've been lucky and fortunate and blessed over the years to be able to grow this thing and, and to make a living at it and, and to now be able to get some of those opportunities to hunt where I never thought that I would. But that's not how it started and that's not how I learned. I, I learned just like everybody else and getting out there and, and, and beating people to spots and finding my own spots on public ground and, and learning and cutting my teeth there. So I think that, that, that in itself sometimes is a big misconception as far as just what they, what people see on TV is, is just not knowing that backstory of, of where somebody come from and how they started. They see the end result and they see the, the 22 minutes that we put on TV of being able to go to a, a good spot or, you know, somewhere we've been lucky enough to get to hunt and, and be successful, but they don't get to see all the years and all the time and effort that got put in, uh, growing up and learning and, and building that foundation to get to where we're at now. No, I, I mean, I, I completely get what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I'm just, I'm trying to say that there is a whole bigger population out there that aren't us. Right. And I get it. We, oh, nobody, a hundred percent. I agree with what you're saying too. I mean, I think the, I think keeping the public, the public land and, and having, you know, having a place to where people can go out and hunt and learn and, and take people and get them into the sport. That's the only thing. That's the only thing that's gonna, that's really gonna keep the industry and, and the hunting numbers growing. Because at the end of the day, if 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 you don't have a baseball field to go play baseball on, chances are you ain't gonna go play. Yeah. You know, and and it goes right back to hunting. And and like you said, I mean, you gotta have those lands open and and be able to have a playground for these people to be able to go out and do what they love to do. And on the other side of it, in outdoor TV and what we do is that you get you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Like. I get a lot of, a ton of messages. Hey, you guys need to film more on public property. Yep. Well, okay. If we do that and we're trying to set up on a duck hole here and we got 40 groups around us that are trying to accomplish the same thing. And they all have the exact same right as we do to be out there on this public land, whether it's a refuge or, a, or, you know, somewhere that, that, that is open to public hunting in every state in the country. It's harder to do that and make TV because you're working a group of ducks and this group over here might be working them. They shoot, they sky blast, they pass shoot, whatever it is. We can't get done what we're trying to get done. And then if we go out and do it, we're successful. And then we go on TV and we say, well, we're over here and the da 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 da, quote unquote, whatever it is. And now we get all this hate mail. Yeah, why 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 are you you, turning on our spots? Yeah, why are you turning all our spots out there and getting the attention on it? So it's almost like you got like danged if you do and danged if you don't. If we stay here on this private land that, you know, is our little nook and cranny and we can just stay here. And all of a sudden, we, if we even say the state that we're in, we're subject to hate mail of saying, yeah. oh, don't be telling people that Missouri has big deer. Don't be telling people that, let me tell you something. Everybody knows that Kansas and Missouri and Iowa and all these places have big deer. It's no secret. That's Outdoor right. TV didn't make that and it's happen. The same, it's the same way on the deer side. You know, you get, 
you get people too. And, and, and like I said, man, everybody, everybody is, has got an opinion and everybody that's good. I mean, I got opinions myself. And, but the thing about it is, is you get, sometimes you get people that, that write in or whatever and they say, well, you know, all we see is the successful hunts. You know, what about, what about, you know, why don't you do a show? Why don't you do episodes to where <laughs> you go out there and hunt that public ground and you're, you're hunting just like we are for 30 days and you never shoot a deer. And it's like, well, we could, but how many people, how many people is going to watch that episode? How entertaining is that episode going to be at the end of the day of us not doing anything, you know, not getting anything accomplished? They're going to change the channel. You know, there's going to be three people that's going to like that episode for every hundred that wants to see something get shot and wants to see you be successful. So it's, it, it just, it goes back to what you said. I mean, it's kind of like danged if you do, danged if you don't. I mean, we have, we have 30 day stretches right now where we go where we don't shoot anything but it's hard to make an entertaining episode with that so you keep going back and you keep saying something i'm transitioning here again i'm trying to be a good transitioning host (laughs) um what is good tv to you i won't give me some titles i want to hear something entertainment i just want to know what you watch what's good tv on the outdoor channel what what gets you going? Like what some of your peers that you see Man, out there? I've, I've always, like, I've always looked up to Michael Waddell, you know, Nick and T-Bone, those guys with what they do with Bone Collector. And back in the, I, I really liked the original road trips when, when road trips first come out, you know, I thought that was. The one with Tom Green? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that's uh when, when Michael, when Michael started road trips, I think I was a, I don't remember. I, I want to say that was like an O2 or something like that. I think I just got out of high school and, uh, Man, I thought, I mean, that was like, that was it. I was like, man, this guy has done it. And he did. I mean, he he really, if you look back at it, I mean, he kind of paved the road for reality-type outdoor television with road trips because nobody had really done anything like that before. And, uh, man, I, I looked up to those guys a ton. I, I love that show. But there's there's a lot of people on the outdoor uh, on the outdoor channel that does a great job. You know, I mean – you look at, from a production standpoint, I mean, you look at some of the stuff that Shockey does. I mean, it's unbelievable. Pat Nicole does a great job. There's so many There's so many of them out there, but I've always kind of gravitated towards Michael's personality and what he does. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like he, he is out of everybody, to me anyway, and from, from how I grew up and where I come from, he's one of the more relatable people that I can relate to. So you're saying that if you had your choice right now, you would watch an episode of road trips because it is still on nick and t-bone and michael all help host that show but you would watch bone collector first and foremost i think yeah bone collectors bone collector is one of my m- more favorite ones uh i like kip campbell's show too red arrow that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's a great he's one. hilarious kip, Crips, uh, kip kip's one of the best hosts i think that there is now he's on funny. outdoor channel i really he, like his bumpers yeah he, he's he's, he's crazy funny man and they do a good job and i mean it's a it's a well-produced show and and he's another one that's just to me he's just super relatable kind of to who i am um I, I feel like I feel like we kind of mesh, and I think that Waddell's story is kind of like yours. I mean, Waddell started as a cameraman for, for Realtree. Realtree. That's right, and then he got a chance to get out in front of the camera, like, "Hey, we got an extra tag." And then it was kind of like that story of the first baseman. I don't want to. I can't play today, you know. And then yeah. all of a sudden, I think, comes in the game and hits a home run, and, and he's he never there. plays again. Yeah, you know, there's there. been guys in professional sports that have lost their jobs and their careers right. because of that. And Waddell came in and got an opportunity and absolutely crushed it. And the thing I love about him is that. He's humble. He, he'll still, he's approachable. He'll talk to you. He's one of those guys to where he is the same guy in real life that he is on TV. And everybody's got their ups and downs. The person, I don't know Michael Waddell inside and out, but as far as from what I've, the times I've got to hang with him, the times I've got to talk with him, the times I've watched him on TV, I'm a fan. And then you go to his co-host, Nick Munt. He was another 
cameraman for for real tree real road tree, trips yeah. or real tree big bucks or monster bucks or real tree outdoors and all of a sudden he gets his chance to be out in front of the camera he puts the billy bob teeth in he's standing there with his butt out he's doing his accents and his impersonations <laughs> and boom and now he's a solid tv host right. t-bone same way he used to make little you know little uh little appearances you know the archery competition archery competition on the monster box and then he started with jeff foxworthy and putting the billy bob teeth in and he had his characters that he did and now t-bone's one of the most relatable guys you know t-bone is he's an amazing archery shot he's an amazing bow and arrow technician you never really get that he never really concentrates himself on showing the world how solid of a of an archer he truly is but he is like a modern day Fred Bear. He oh, is that yeah, guy he, that can hit anything he aims at. He's unbelievable. He could fix a bow, he could tune a bow, he could sight a bow in, and then he can go out. And, and I know that a lot of you guys can, but T Bone just comes across that guy that everybody looks to, like, hey, get my bow Shoot, tuned he's, up. He's set several of my bows up. I yeah, mean, he's I've, the man. I've taken I've taken bows down there to him, and he's a he's like a scientist when it comes to working on bows. I love he's, that dude, man. I he's love awesome. Him. But there's some, man. I mean, getting back to like outdoor television and and good shows and and good producers, they're like I said, there's so much, there's so much, uh, diversity in it. You know, you, you can talk about like a while ago, you hit on the juries and you know what Mark and Terry done with, with their show 13. I was a fan of that show too, because I don't think that there's, I don't think there's anybody in the whitetail world that I look up to more than what like Mark Jury's doing on uh 13. I mean, the way that he, the way that he turns that into an educational show and and what he knows and just just the little tidbits and the little nuggets that you can pull out of that show is pretty incredible. And what's cool about a show like that is that being on the other side of it and doing what we do is that we have a good grasp and a good understanding of what it takes to put a show like that on with the animations and the education part of it. They're not just going in the day before that thing's due to the network and putting that together. Oh, that, man. The that's hours a process. Upon hours upon hours of work that goes into a show like that between all the, like you said, all the graphical animations and graphics and just just overall production quality and the show they had before that with the you know the dream season where Mm -hmm. they took that kind of reality big brother the amazing race approach to these different teams in different states was genius in a lot of ways you're getting content from a lot of these guys that are good at it like you and nate were doing you're getting content to the to whitetail freaks back in the day they take that and they incorporate it into a contest a competitive thing that really didn't concentrate on the the biggest deer or slaughtering the most deer per se it concentrated on land management it concentrated on video and, and production and storylines and, and personality and I'm, i've always been a fan of what mark and terry do and you know i've i've been around been around them at shows and and and, and shook their hands before and they're great dudes they're humble mm-hmm. guys and they've done it they've oh, been yeah. there done that in the whitetail world and turkey world and i and you know now their daughter and, and everybody that that is working within that realm right now is is on a path of success paved by those guys no doubt and that's what i like about this industry is that i really think there's a lot of people out there that are willing to give a lending hand if you go out and ask for it and who knows if their answer is going to be the same as ours i've never really walked up to mark or terry or waddell or t-bone or bill jordan and said hey can you teach me how to be on camera can you that's not the right way to go about it but i have picked up on things that they do in the industry when it comes to branding when it comes to showcasing and promotion and things like that there is a a right way to do that stuff in my opinion it doesn't have to be cookie cutter but it does have to be innovative it does have to be out of the box and it's got to be in front of people and those guys are always working they're always two to three steps ahead of everybody and that's what i love about michael waddell is that 
I go on TV and I freestyle rap. He was doing it 10 years ago with Red Akins and, and singing songs up in tents when they got snowed in in Alaska on, on, a, Northwest, moose on a moose hunt in Northwest yep. Territories or Alaska or somewhere. That to me is real life because I could see him and Thomas or him and him and Thomas Rhett's dad up there, Red Akins, um, up there in that tent singing songs and rapping and freestyle and doing the Beastie Boys and doing Twisted Sister and whoever it was. Same thing we would be doing. And if we same were thing there. we'd be. And Waddell's that guy. I've seen Waddell walk into parties at Shot Show with a Guns and Roses shirt on. Yep. He's got a Hank Williams Bo Cephas shirt on, and that's him. And he's from Booger Bottom, Georgia. Yeah, it just goes back to being thing. relatable, man. Relatable. That's and right. I think that's why he's probably going to go down in history as the best outdoor TV show host of all time. I truly think that. I agree. I, I think Waddell's amazing at what he does, and I think that he makes everybody around him better. I think that there's the Bone Collector show when he's in camp are my favorite episodes. I love Nick. I love T-Bone, what they're doing, but Waddell's just got a way of making you feel like, damn it, man, I wish I was on I was, that mountain. I wish I was in that camp. I wish I was on that mountain with him right now. And that's always been our goal, too, you know, going back to, like, you were asking a while ago, like, how, you know, how do you... When you go in to film an episode or, or you go in to produce a show, like, what do you guys, what's your goal? And man, like, that's always been one of our goals is to make the audience, make the guy that's watching that show go, man, I wish I was in camp. I want to be in camp with those guys right there because it looks like they have a dang good time. And I think as long as you're accomplishing that, I think, uh, I, th I think you're headed down the right road. Do you think, do you think that being relatable is can be learned no I, I i know i don't i think you either got it or you don't and i think i think if you're trying to learn how to be relatable i think you're trying to be somebody that you're not and i think that'll only work for so long i think that uh i think you're either going to be relatable to somebody or you're not going to click with them and and that's not that's not to say that that's right or wrong it's just i think it's just life man i think that some people's got it and some people doesn't i think it's just i think that's just part of life so why is Nate Hosey relatable to people? I think just because he, you know, he comes across like he's just like he is. I mean, he's an he's an average, everyday guy. He's funny. Uh, he's easy going. He plays the guitar. I think he's just a normal dude at the end of the day. And I think that that I think just being a normal guy, I think it's easier for for people to gravitate towards you. I think if you're standoffish or if you're I don't know. I, I think if you're cocky or standoffish, I think you kind of, I think you shy people off. I, I don't think you're as easy for them to warm up to. So you think that you're going to be able to develop a fan faster if they meet you in person? Or do you want to keep that mystique on TV if that's who you are? Or do you look forward to somebody walking up to you all the time, no matter where you're at and, 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 and want to start conversation and now ask I, you questions. I or, look forward, I look forward to meeting people. I mean, at the end of the day, that's why I like the trade show so much. And even the, you know, the consumer shows, the industry shows are okay too, but that's most of our, our peers in the industry. The consumer shows are fun because that's the people, that's more of the people that's actually watching your show every week on TV. And that's the people that at the end of the day that we've got to have to be able to do what we do. And I, and I, I love going to those shows and meeting those people because at the end of the day, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be sitting right here behind these microphones right now. And I love, I love for them to be able to see you outside of what they see on the, on the television screen, because honestly, I feel like, I feel like they need to, and they should be able to see the same person and talk to the same person in person as what they're watching on the television screen. Because I think that at the end of the day, just like we, you know, we were saying a while ago, I think that if, if those two people are different, then I think that you're trying to impersonate somebody that you're not. Do you think Pigman's the same guy that he is on TV as he is in real life? 
Uh, that's uh, a long pause. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know a lot about Pigman. I don't. I don't know him well. I will <laughs> nice say, political. I, I, he I, had to wait for his policies I'll to say, give that answer. I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this that I don't see him being as erratic in real life as what I see on TV. From when from when I've been around him, he seems more laid back in real life than what he seems like on TV. But I can, honestly, I can't say that I've ever been around him enough to be able to truly answer that question 100%. Would you want to share camp with him? Uh, I don't know if we'd click, man. We might, I don't know, we might scrap it out. Why? I don't know. I feel like we got two different kinds of personalities. So is there a right way to represent the heritage of hunting or is there, is there do you look down on somebody that is that 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 aggressive that mouth that mouthful that you know i don't know if i would say that i look down on them but i would say i would say that that isn't that isn't who that isn't who i i want to be as far as that's not how i want to be seen as representing now does it make a difference though that he's allowed to be like that because of the reputation that the wild hog has established in our country in states like texas and florida and Louisiana and California to where they've become what we call a nuisance and that they're on, you know, people just want to get rid of them because they do, they cause havoc on everything from agriculture to cropland to wildlife populations. He's going out, turns on the feeder or goes out and spot and stalks one or knives one or shoots one with a bow or a pistol or a rifle. Is it okay for him to act the way he does because he's just shooting pigs? What if he was shooting deer or something that was more traditional than a hog hunter? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, my opinion is, man, is like, it don't matter. It don't matter what you're hunting or what animal you're hunting. You're still, at the end of the day, you're doing a job, you know, to pop, you know, to take care of the population and control the population, but you're still taking lives, man. And it's, it's, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be all fun and games. At so that. it shouldn't be a celebration every time you stick a pig. Well, I think you can, I think you, it, there's nothing wrong with celebrating to a certain extent, but I don't think that you ought to overdo it. I, I think, I think when it comes more about the celebration than it, than it does about what you're doing and why you're there, then I think then that there's a problem at the end of the day. So is there an error? And I'm not saying I'm not saying that I'm not saying that's I'm not seeing enough of his stuff to know if that's the case or not. I'm saying I'm generally speaking on that. Yeah, and I I just pick pig out because he uses words like shank and and all these words that are kind of like about the kill and that you know that if he's not killing if stacking the pigs up that he's not happy. And I and I know Brian, I think he's a great guy, he makes me laugh. I think he's a great television host. I've just always questioned myself like if we acted like that killing ducks or geese or something that's more of a traditional sense of hunting because hogs are being exterminated however people can whether Mm -hmm. it's helicopter hunting them or whether it's uh, poisoning them whatever it is they're trying to get rid of them so is it give him that right to be a little bit more boisterous a little bit more i don't know if it's an arrogance but I, i think that there is some arrogance there but if he acted like that killing whitetail or standing in a tree stand or doing something that's more sought after. Well, I don't, I don't think it, I, I don't think it should matter about how much something sought after or what kind of animal it is or anything else. I think at the end of the day, there, there has to be, there has to be that respect for anything that you're hunting at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what it is. Don't matter if it's ducks, pigs, hogs, elk, it doesn't matter what it is. At the end of the day, you're taking, you're taking an animal's life and that's got to mean something if you're a sportsman. And if, you know, I think that there's still got to be that that respect there. So is he relatable to the everyday hunter? Uh, to me, I mean, I I don't know. That's a hard that's a hard question. Is man. Jim Shockey relatable to the everyday hunter? 
No. Or is he out of, is he, is he so far out of reach that it's almost impossible to even imagine yourself doing what Jim Shockey does? To me, to me, he wouldn't be relatable to an everyday hunter just because I don't think that the everyday hunter would have the opportunities to go to the places, even if they would want to, or if they wouldn't want to, to go to the places in the countries and hunt the animals that he's, that he's hunting. To me, I, I don't. So does that kind of give him like that nostalgia or that aura of being like the superhero that's like, like almost not real to people. And that's why people relate to him or quote unquote relate to him. Or that's why people want to watch his stuff is because they're like, I didn't know that you could go to the mountains in Spain and kill that. I didn't know you could go to Iran and kill that. I mean, you can't take anything away from what Shockey's done. No. And I think, I think Shockey, I think Shockey has earned that respect because I think Shockey has evolved into that. I don't think that's what Shockey started as. No, he was just an outfitter in Saskatchewan. But that's what I'm saying, though, is I think he's earned. I think he's earned that respect, no matter what he does or what he hunts this day and age, because of the foundation that he built from the get go. I mean, he started. He started as an outfitter. He hunted. He hunted whitetail. He hunted moose. He hunted bear. Every, everything in you know the United States and Canada. I mean, he's pretty much hunted, and that's where he built his foundation, and that's where he built his credibility at. And, uh, you know, I mean, more shoot, more power to him. If that's what he's into, if he wants to go over there and hunt those things now, I mean, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. I, I don't relate to it because it's, it's not, I don't, honestly, I don't care much about doing a lot of that stuff in those other countries, but I don't think that it's, I don't think there's anything negative there. No, I don't. I, I think that what he's done for our industry is awesome. I think that he stayed humble. I think that he presents himself the right way. I think that he talks about conservation and SCI and, and, and all of the different organizations out there to support. I think that he, and I know that he makes a good living doing this. I know that he makes a good living putting his name on outfitting services. I think that he's a great voice and a great personality for the, the, you know, the overall, for the overall sport, for the overall sport. It's just, I've always asked myself when I'm watching his show, like uncharted or the professionals or even just Jim Shockey's hunting adventures is like what percentage of people are going to be into this if they know that they're never going to go to Peru and do that, or they're never going to be in the Amazon doing that. Yeah. <laughs> but he draws an audience. And I think because he is a relatable person, he is oh, so yeah. down to earth with his cowboy hat and his range. He, oh, he's, oh, he's awesome, man. I, I mean, love one of the man. most polite. Yeah. He's awesome. He, I mean, he, he's, he's a pleasure to talk to and, and just a guy that's really, I mean, at the end of the day, man, there ain't much that guy hasn't done as no. far as on the hunting side of things. And, you know, you, you were asking me about different people and opinions. And I, I think one thing that we got to we gotta all remember um, at the end of the day is there's it, it's just like outdoor television programming. You know, we were talking about that earlier and what we think makes a good show and who has the best shows and, and along those lines. And it's the same way with outdoor personalities. There can be, you can line up a hundred outdoor personalities from, you, you might have Pigman on one end of the spectrum and you might have Michael Waddell on the other end. And really at the end of the day, I don't think it's right for me or right for you or anybody else to judge them to a certain extent, because at the end of the day, if they, if they have a following, if they are growing the sport, then we got to remember and we got to respect that in each person, because each person's going to be each person's going to be a little bit different on how they portray that message. Now, it might not be mine or your, we might not agree as far as how our opinion goes about how they're doing it. But at the end of the day, we got to be careful too. I think as far as criticizing people too much, as long as they are growing the sport, because but we no, gotta, but nobody's criticizing anybody. I'm just trying to figure out where where do you draw the no, line? No, I'm not saying as far, but but 
just generally speaking, I'm saying you see it all the time on social media and this and that, like people basically drawing a line in the sand against one person or the other or or whatever it might be. Just like the just like the argument as far as like whether crossbows should be legal versus vertical. So bows. what you're saying is that as long as somebody like let's just take Pigman for example, as long as he is ethically and morally established in what he's doing with wild pigs, the way that he's killing them, the way that he's harvesting them. It doesn't matter his personality. It doesn't matter if somebody takes it as disrespect, if he uses different words to show that he has killed this pig. As long as he's doing it legally and morally correct. And ethically. And he's getting people involved in it, then it's okay, is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm saying saying I might not not agree or I might not be, um, it, it might not be how I would do things. But that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean it's right or wrong just because it's not how I would do something. I think as long as somebody's ethically, like you said, ethically, morally doing stuff the right way, then you're going to have a hundred different people that's going to do things a hundred different ways. But as long as they're growing the sport and bringing people in and, and people and, and they're drawing people into what they do, I think it's good to have them there. Because I think at the end of the day, you can't everybody can't and and everybody will not ever be exactly the same. I think that's what makes the world go around at the end of the day is you got to have diversity in everything that you do. It's just like outdoor television programming. If every outdoor television show is exactly the same, there nobody would nobody would watch a different show. It, it, there everybody's got their own opinions and everybody's got stuff that they like and no matter whether we're hunting or making outdoor television or whatever we're doing, there's got to be diversity in it. That's what makes the world go around. Were you a fan of bracket? I like I like Brack. I I actually I, I do like some of Brackett's stuff. I thought he did a I thought he did a very good job of uh, being unique. He was different. Of, he 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 did a very good job of captivating people. Uh, he was he was very unique, very creative. I thought he had a I thought he had a dang good show. Now I'm not going to say that I agreed with. Every, it's kind of like it's kind of like the Pigman thing. I, I'm not I'm not going to say that he done everything the way that I would do, or he said the same things that I would say. But as far as from a production standpoint, and, and I, think, I think Brackett is a good hunter, uh, I think he had a dang good show. Hell of an archery shot. I mean, yeah, great, great <clears throat> archery shot. And I knew, Chris, I knew Chris way back before he ever had a show, you know, when he was, when he was first getting started shooting the flying fish. And I remember going and, and filming an episode uh, with Lee and Tiffany there, you know, a long time ago. With what he got in trouble for, a lot of people look at that and say it's the – fame or it's the thought process that you got to kill the biggest and the baddest deer on the land because if i get this on camera i'm going to get a i'm going to get notoriety i'm going to get bigger sponsors i'm going to get a bigger paycheck and in reality it kind of got him to in the position that he's in now i'm wondering if that mentality was before the camera started following somebody like chris brackett or is it something that you establish inside of your mental psyche yeah, going hard. along the way like i got to perform for the camera yeah. I, I'm in a slump like Bryce Harper right now. He's, he's down to like 214 and he's swinging at pitches out of the strike zone. Is that Chris Brackett just swinging at pitches out of the strike zone? You know, that analogy is sports again. Well, and I think it's human. I think it's human nature too to, to always want to one up or outdo yourself at the end of the day. I think that just comes with, with human nature. And, and I, and I don't know, I, I don't know what led Chris to do what he, to do what he did, but, um, like I said, I mean, it's, it's easy. I think on outdoor television, it's easy to get Well, let me up. ask you this, Birdsong, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but have you ever as a human being, as a hunter, ever been tempted to kill a bigger deer after you already killed one, if another one walked around? Does it tempt you? 
Oh, have I, you ever even looked at it and, and put a bullet back in your gun or I drawn th- your bow back? I think I think anybody that told you that they that they weren't tempted would be lying. I, so it's that self control. Yeah, I, I think I think at the end of the day, you just got to you got to be able to make the right decision on it and say, you know, that ain't that ain't me. I'm not going to do that. It's not right. So it's not it's not the excuse of I made a mistake. It's there's something that goes through your mind to actually put yourself in that position. Is that we're all, we've all been there. I've been there well, thousands of times to where, you know, you, you, you could kill way more ducks. You didn't kill any for the first 20 days of the season because mother nature didn't cooperate and the migration wasn't on key. And then all of a sudden all the mallards show up and you could sit in the woods and, and, and just smoke them all day long. Chances of getting caught, who knows? But morally and ethically correct, the way that my dad taught me was, you don't poach. You don't go over your limit. You don't kill more than what you need because at the end of the day, a picture with a bunch of dead ducks just means more work. It means more work to clean them. And, and if you're not into cleaning them and processing them and butchering them and, and, and putting them on the table to eat, then why are you killing that many? So my point is, is that there's that part that goes to your mind. If I do this, there's going to be repercussions. There's going to be consequences to pay. And that's not what makes me say I'm not going to do it. What makes me say I'm not going to do it is the way that I was brought up as a hunter. Mm -hmm. Mistakes are made in the field every day. I get that part of it. But it's our ignorance that causes a lot of those mistakes. And it's that black eye that's put on hunting in our heritage when when hunters that are the voice and the face of our sport do that stuff. And that's what's inexcusable to me is that we all are in that position. I'm on the finest lands all the time where I could smoke 100 greenheads in a day if I wanted. I could shoot them until my finger fell off or until I killed 10 bands. If I don't kill a band in the first 100, I'm going to kill 100 more to find a band. I don't have that mentality. And I'm not on a soapbox. I'm just simply saying that there's got to be a piece of psyche that goes through your brain at that time that goes, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do it. And then you got to say, what is the benefit that I'm going to get out of what's getting ready to happen and there's no benefit to it yeah no no i i i agree man and and with with the way things are now and with us you know needing to grow the sport and needing to bring hunters in i don't think that's the i don't think that's doing anybody any good at the end of the day it's it's shining it's shining negative light um on us and and we can't you know we can't go down that road what what um can we do to to salvage that or what can we do to put a band-aid on that what do we do we have to we have to be better at being mentors i I believe of Mm -hmm. of if you're on tv and you're showing a hunt in the right way i think that we have to do a good job of showing the right way to hunt is that the right thing to say is there a right way to kill ducks? i I don't know is there how how what is the right way to kill a deer out of a tree stand is it 70 yards is it letting it get right underneath your stand is it do you show a shot when you spine a deer is that realistic or do you i don't i don't understand like where the line needs to be drawn in the ethics and the morals of outdoor tv and what goes on to impress that audience yeah and i think that's an argument that i mean you could have a hundred people lined up and i think i think every one of them would have a different opinion but I think at the end of the day, you know, no matter what you're doing on outdoor television, I think you got to be able to show that you're doing it for the right reasons. I think that's the big thing. You know, don't you're not out there showing that you're doing it for self-glorification or, you know, you're you're not out there trying to pretend that you're somebody that you're not. Um, I think you got to show that you're doing it for the right reasons and that, that you love it and that it means something to you, not only the hunting aspect of it, but what you're hunting. At the end of the day, man, I mean, that's 
that's why we all, that's how we grew up doing it. You know, that's why we got into it because we loved to do it. We didn't, we didn't get into it because we were trying to make somebody think that we loved it or we didn't, we didn't get into it because we wanted to get another 10,000 likes on, on Instagram. Really? Well, that seems like to me, it's almost like there's even shows out there on our network now that are about getting likes on Instagram. And like, to me, you just hit on something that's so important is exactly why people would let that mental process take them to that spot of saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to break the law. I'm going to be unethical. I'm going to poach. I'm going to do whatever it is. That's not part of what we do now. Mistakes again are made, but that's not what a hunter is about. You can't tell me that your dad taught you how to poach. Your dad's taught you the exact opposite. Like mine did. He taught me that if there's mistakes, you're transparent and honest and you admit to them and you fix them. You learn from them, but you don't let that fame or that camera or what you just said, 10,000 likes. Who gives a flying rat's ass about a picture that gets 10,000 likes? Well, there is a lot of social media celebrity out there that are getting paid in livelihood on it. So how far is that individual willing to push the envelope to get those likes up? to make, to to fabricate a story, to show something that really didn't happen in the wild. And it's happening every day. If you go, if you look at pictures out there, I could, I could tell you so many times where I know that those ducks weren't killed on that day. I guarantee those ducks weren't killed in Kansas on that day. I'm guilty of it myself because you got to build that story. You got to keep that branding. How much, how, how much honesty is in social media as far as these celebrities that are getting paid to have 10,000 likes yeah. or 100,000 followers. Well, and it's kind of it's kind of sad at the end of the day that the industry has has got to that point, but you know, it, it's one of those things to where to a certain extent you either conform to it and you go along with it and you you jump into that boat as far as building that social media side of things or you're kind of getting left in in the in the dark, but there's still no matter what you do, there's still a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And I think that that's the biggest thing on the social media side is it doesn't matter if you're hunting in front of the camera. It doesn't matter if you're posting a picture on Instagram, on Facebook, or if you're putting a YouTube video up. No matter what you're doing, you've got to stay true to who you are. You've got to show people that you're out there doing it. You're doing it in the right way. You're doing it because you love it, not because you're just looking to gain a follower or you're, you're looking to gain a like. Is that important? It's important for all of us to gain that following, but you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. You've got to be doing it because you do truly love it. Not because you're wanting to portray that you love it. You know, that, that's, that's my opinion on it. What, what's, your, what's your thoughts on it? Well, I'm just, you know, I, I kind of think like I've, I've hunted with a lot of girls that come on duck hunts. And never once have I seen them show up in the duck blind with a ton of makeup on. And then all of a sudden I look at all these pictures out there that are with these, you know, these Instagram celebrities that are gaining these following of they go bow fishing and they're holding a the bow up. And they got a, tons of makeup on and they look gorgeous, right? They're supermodels with a dead animal. I'm more interested in, can that girl hunt? I want to know the story of what her daddy and her granddaddy or her boyfriend or her husband or whatever taught her and what her skills really are. Yeah. That's why I don't give the a process. I don't care about how hot you look holding that bass up. And I think that if you go through a lot of this Instagram celebrity, a lot of it's based on, on how good these girls can look. And I'm not saying that any of them can't hunt. I'm not saying that any of them aren't badasses with a bow or a rifle or a slingshot. I don't care what it is. I want to know, are you truly that established? Are you truly that legitimate of a hunter? And I'm not saying that I am. 
but I don't want it to be sold as this sex object holding a dead deer. Nothing, I think that, and I have a daughter and that drives me crazy to think that you could sell our heritage of hunting because a beautiful girl's holding a dead deer. There's a lot of girls that might not necessarily be deemed beautiful or gorgeous or supermodel quality that are great hunters that might not get 100,000 likes because they don't look like that. Right. And I think that in my mind that that's what I'm seeing a lot of is that you got all these beautiful, quote unquote, you know, hot girls that are getting these followings, that are getting these sponsorship deals. I don't know if they're really credible to go and say, hey, you're going to need this bow. And I'm not saying they're not. I don't want anybody to listen to this and say, he's saying that they're just, I'm not. I'm wondering, yeah. is it, could a girl that doesn't look like that get the same deal based on a picture, based on the fact I that I don't think so. What do you, I mean, I'm just opening up a can of worms here. Yeah, I don't, I don't, that's, know, that's I don't what know I always think I don't know if they can or not. And, and, you know, my fear is, and, and I know you're the same way. At the end of the day, man, this industry is our livelihood. It's it, only got so much money to go around. This, is it going to go to the hot chick every time? This industry is our livelihood. This industry, we, we cut our teeth in it. You know what I mean? And, and it means a lot to us. And my, my fear is, is, hey, if, if they're credible and they can pull their weight, and they're legitimate, I have zero problem with it. Zero. I don't, they're, they're just, I mean, they're just as welcome as we are in it. But I think that we got to be very careful, and especially the manufacturers and the companies in this industry, of putting their money and their emphasis behind people that are not credible and not reputable, because I think at the end of the day, that could sour our whole industry. That's my opinion. And my point in all of this is, without the social media aspect of it, you used to have to show how you good you were. Prove you yourself. You used to have to go to a, bow, a, a, a shooting competition and show me that you could kill 98 out of 100 clays or, or, or pin arrows where you needed them. Or the, these girls had to go and, and, and say, hey, I'm on, I, can, I can keep up with the Joneses. I, I, can, I can do this with a rifle. I can go and deer hunt. I could go call ducks. I could go call turkeys. And I know a lot of girls that can that don't have a hundred thousand followers because they don't look like that. I'm not going to say any names, but we both sitting across this table from each other. We've both been with them. We've both seen them. We've both been in meetings. We've both been at events with them. And I'm always wondering, is there a method to their madness? Are they getting away with something? Are they pulling the wool over people's eyes or are they really legit hunters? And I'm not just talking about, um, just, in our industry, it's in fishing. It's in a lot of different oh, yeah. industries. And I think, I think, I think it's a combination. I mean, I think, I think some of them definitely can pull their weight. I think some of them probably have definitely proven themselves. But I think, you know, just like anything, I think that some of them probably are fraudulent a little bit. I mean, that's just that's just human nature. You didn't just say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I would like to know. Like, well, it's the same. It's the same way with it they don't have to be instagram girls it can be the same way with television hosts in our industry it's going to be the same way there there's going to be some that's going to be reputable some that's going to but like you look at somebody like tiffany okay like everybody could say dude she's hot you know she carries that show no well lee's a genius lee knows how to build a white tail population in land and yeah he is a badass he's a freaking deer nerd you know from what i know about lee but and at I the love end him. of the day a tiffany's a killer if tiffany is a killer she has honed her skills and now granted 
She gets put in some good positions, but she's worked hard. Lee's worked hard, and I don't take anything away from them. But she still comes out west and kills elk and antelope. And she's still got to draw that bow back and keep her composure and her breathing and her heart rate and everything. That takes a lot. And I see that. Now, I'm not saying that these girls that are famous in a picture getting, they're getting 100,000 likes on a picture. Tiffany doesn't get 100,000 likes, and she proves herself weekly that she can smoke. I've said said over the top of her uh, many times with the video camera videoing her, and that girl will get it done now. But you know what I'm saying is that. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I wonder what I wonder if we sat here and interviewed somebody like Tiffany or had a conversation with Tiffany or Eva or Nicole. You know, Nicole Reeve has been put in a ton of positions mm-hmm. to perform, and she does. Now there always is that argument. There's the power of editing. Can I take a duck hunt to where I miss a hundred shots and make it look like I shot? We every, do that on every episode. We could every time. <laughs> we try not to. You don't. No, you try not kidding. to. You don't want to be that guy. Yeah. But I'm just simply saying that I often think I don't look down on because I, in America where it's free enterprise, you go get yours. I don't care what you're doing as long as it's ethically and morally correct and you're not breaking the law and you're not yeah. hurting somebody you're stealing or, you know, taking from somebody to, to better yourself, go make a living. And if these girls are making a living and drawing an income from being pretty with a dead fish or a dead deer in their hands, all I'm saying is that what due diligence is being done by companies that are paying them to make sure that that deer hunt or that deer harvest was credible and that them with all that makeup on looking gorgeous is a legitimate deal. Now, can you turn the table on guys? Can I have this argument about guys? Are there guys out there that are modeling an eight pack of abs and holding up fish (laughs) that are getting money? I don't know. I don't really know that. I don't know because maybe it's unfair. Is it unfair to the woman hunter that you have to be gorgeous with a dead deer with some blood on your pants to be taken serious? Or can you just be a normal looking dude like us? And go out and be credible. Maybe we're, I should try the, the, the makeup. Thing. But you know, we're not Chippendales dancers. We're not all oiled up and tanned up and 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 looking heart throbbingly sexy like Shoot, David speak, Hasselhoff. Speak, speak for yourself, speak man. For yourself. But what I'm saying is that is it fair? These are these girls being treated the same? Do they have to be beautiful to to have this Instagram following, or can they just be a good hunter? Well, at the end of the day, life ain't fair. Can they just be a good hunter though? I don't. I, are any of them looked at as being good hunters, or are they all just looked at as being hot with a dead deer? It's a, it's an honest question. It's it's a question that I just want to know about because I want to know if they can hunt. Right? Can you hunt? Can you fish? I hope that they can. I prove bet you your, th- prove it. You know, prove yourself. Prove a little bit of it. Yep. But my point is, is, you don't have to prove it to me. I just want to make sure that that money exactly. that you're getting and exactly. being taken out, taken of, out all, of our pockets is, yeah. <laughs> is it really legitimate? <laughs> yeah. Or is it unfair to the rest of the people that don't look like that? Well, the pretty girl always wins. I don't know. Yep. And this isn't anything to do with against pretty women. I get that. I, I'm not against that at all. I'm not saying that if you're pretty, you don't know how to hunt. I'm just simply saying with the with the popularity of social media, and you see these girls getting 15, 20, 60,000, a lot of people be like, Belding's just jealous because he doesn't get that. No, I don't care. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that I want those likes. I just want to know, is it because you're gorgeous? Yeah. Or it's because you're a credible hunter or a fisher? Yeah, and, and I think I think as, you know, as television hosts and and two guys that's been in the industry for a long time, I think we deserve that answer to a certain extent. I think, I mean, from the manufacturers, I mean, I think they, they should tell us, like, just like you said a while ago, are they doing their due diligence to, to make sure that that credibility is there and make sure that that reputation is there? I don't know if they are or not, but I think they should be because I think if they're not, as an industry and as a manufacturer, I think eventually that's going to that's gonna deteriorate our industry. If it's not there, if that credibility and that, that reputation isn't there. So, and I think to a certain extent it's already happening. 
So instead of chasing the likes, should there be some proving grounds that before you take this money that you have to show me that you can carry somebody on a hunt and you can give a lesson on, on a bow or do they have to prove themselves or can they just make the money for being hot? That's really the question here, right? Are you saying that you would like to see some proof? I, I think there should be for sure. Do you think that other women out there that might not necessarily be deemed gorgeous? Do you think that other women out there are looking at these women that are making this living, that are getting these 20,000 likes. Do you think that they look at them as mentors and voices and stewards of the, of the sport of the lifestyle of the passion of the hunt? Or do you think that they're looking at them like, I don't put makeup on when I go deer hunting. Well, you in? No, I, you know, I mean, from, how do they look at it? I mean, I think, I think the latter of what you said from what I see, I mean, I think there's, I think there's a lot of jealousy there um, <laughs> and a little bit of hatred from the, from the, the ladies that have proven themselves. And then you've got all you've got all these the new ones coming in that nobody really knows. Like you said, I mean, it's just a it's just a question: are they are they credible or are, are they, they a not? flash in the pan? I mean, is it, are they here today, gone tomorrow kind yeah, of deal? Or are they going to have some longevity with credibility to develop an audience and a following and show people like, hey, this is this is what I do. Yeah, I'm not just a spokesmodel with a dead deer. I'm actual legit at what I do. I don't need this makeup on. I wear this for this photo shoot. But that photo shoot's taken during a hunt. So, like, are you really waking up to look gorgeous for the camera? And and is it is it fair? I mean, is it fair to the Tiffany's, to the Candy Kiskies, Nicole? You yeah, know, am I am I am I loop, you know, lumping them all together? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that I that I entrust more in any of them than I do one of the girls on yep. Instagram. All I'm saying is that we've with, seen the proof. We've seen the proof on the ladies that are established and that they've been there on outdoor television. All the, all the ones that I just named, we've seen that proof, but you know, I don't know. And I don't know if we deserve to see the proof, like you said, in this industry of these girls that are getting this notoriety. Again, I'm not taking anything away from them. I'm just simply asking, are they getting it because of the beauty or because of some, some talent? I want to know if they are getting the credibility that they are getting in this circle, in this arena, because they're hot or because they can kill. I don't think you want to know that answer, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I want to know. I, I, you know you, oh, you're telling me you already know it and that I don't. Okay, I get it. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a subject that I've, I, when we talk about social media, it comes up a lot in my mind. I don't talk about it a lot because I don't look down on them for doing what they're doing. I'm just simply saying, can you sit in front of me in front of a class of 20 people and teach them how to run a turkey call? Can you sit at, a, at an archery exposition and teach me how to pull back a bow and be accurate? Like when Nick Munt shot that deal in Georgia and in, in that archery competition and, and was just as cool and calm and relaxed and, and, and his, his approach to every shot to win that 3D tournament down mm -hmm. there in Georgia when we were there. And then he turns around and can teach and Tebow can turn around and teach. That to me is credibility. No, I, yeah, and I agree. And I'm, again, is, is it, it's, I'm not trying to be unfair to girls. I don't want to be. I love girls being in this space. But I want to know, can you take that picture of looking hot, look, being L. McPherson with a dead deer in your hand, can you put that deer down and teach me what you just did? I, that's where we need yeah. to start getting the credibility. Is, I, no, I can they pass this sport on? I agree with you. And as, a, and as a manufacturer, somebody that's putting money behind it, is it right to put money behind somebody to do these tips, to, to get on social media and teach somebody how to call in a deer that's never killed a deer? 
Never, never shot a deer with a bow, you know? So you're it, saying that th that's going on? You think that's oh, going I, on? I think a hundred percent it's going really? on. Really? Like they're not, they're just, not, yeah. I, so I, these girls that are taking these pictures aren't, they're not even doing, they're no. not even killing the deer they're taking a picture with? Well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that I think man, cer certain manufacturers, I think are putting money behind people to get on and, and teach, just like you said, on social media, do different tips, do different videos that are coming on social media that really hasn't proven themselves as a hunter to be able to go on and, and teach somebody and say, hey, this is, this is how you need to do this. This is the right way to do this. Well, it's been going on in American history forever. Sports Illustrated, calendars, centerfolds, posters. Christy Brinkley, she would sign her posters, and you'd see them up on people's wall back in the 80s with the black fake signature that was printed on there. You go to the SHOT Show, you see a long line. Oh, I wonder who that is signing. You go up there, it's a gun manufacturer. He's got a, 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 a beautiful model from Russia that's signing these posters of her in a bikini holding an Uzi. Really, there's a lot of girls in bikinis holding Uzis, huh? But these guys are, they're just like, wow, they're in awe of it. So they got to have that poster for their garage above their tool, their toolbox, right? And they're in their garage fixing their oil or changing their oil pan or whatever. And boom, they got that picture of that Russian holding that Uzi in their bikini. Now you take it a step further and that mentality... That centerful mentality, that these posters are on people's wall. Guys to have credibility because it's out of, you know, it's like out of their reach. Like it's the unicorn. Now we take that Russian girl that's just holding a newsie in a picture, the female James Bond that's looking hot. And now all of a sudden you put her in the woods with camo on, with flowing locks of hair, with a beautiful face of makeup on that looks like she'd been in wardrobe and in, in, in makeup all morning, holding this deer. Is that reality i think tiffany's reality hat on backwards no makeup on hair all messed up freaking rocking it jumping around ecstatic there's some credibility there i'm not saying that tiffany's the best female hunter of all time by any means because she's not and she'll tell you that she's not i don't know who is i don't know who the best man hunter of all time is but i will that sounded weird man hunter but <laughs> i will tell you this is that mentality of that shot show line of getting that model's autograph now guys are liking pictures and are they even looking at the fish yeah. I, I, Are they even looking at the deer? No, I agree with you, man. And like my, my opinion is, is if as a manufacturer in our industry, if you're going to put money behind something, if the credibility isn't there for their sake, for their sake and our sake and the whole industry's sake, if the credibility is not there, you're going to see a deterioration in our industry. Yeah. Because one day they're, and I think you're already seeing it. Yeah, I one, think you're one, yeah. one day they're marketing this gun. One day they're marketing this holster. The next day they they're doing this, and I'm like, wait a minute. Because what I want to know, here's what I want to know: is those hundred thousand likes are they truly transitioning into sales, or is it of, just because of a guy or is it, our, from manufacturers in our industry, yeah. or is it just a yeah. like, or is it just a guy going, oh my god, she's beautiful, boom, hit the heart. I wish she had my heart. That is the question, and for the girl's sake, for the girl's sake. If they're getting all those likes and they're taking that money and they are asked someday to prove themselves for their sake, I want them to be able to be like, well, hell yeah, let's get in the I truck. I they can. Get yeah. in the boat. Boom, let's and go. As long, and, 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 and I'll go back to this. As long as they can, I have zero problem with it because they have just as much right in there as we do. But as like I said, as somebody that truly loves our industry and truly cares about the longevity of our industry, I hope for the manufacturer's sake that they are using credible people that can prove themselves. Because in, in like somebody like me, you know, I run with a lot of dudes that are river rats and that can drive a boat thousands of times better than me. So back in the day when I started getting some notoriety and some, and, and some potential sponsors were like, Hey, we'd like you to use our boat motor. I've soon found out 
I better learn how to freaking drive a mud motor to the best of my ability because when they see me on TV, yeah, I you don't want to look like an idiot. Yeah, and then when they come hunting or they want to do, if I had our boat manufacturer, our, our boat motor manufacturer come out and do a photo shot, photo shoot this year, I was going to be damned if they came out here from Louisiana and I put that boat in the water and then I took and didn't know how to you know drive it or or maneuver the boat, but. Five years ago, I wasn't as good as I am now. Two years ago, a year ago, I wasn't as good as I am. I watched somebody, I got buddies in the south and southeast part of this country that could ride a boat up and down my, like there's no tomorrow. And I wanted to be more like them because I wanted to be better. So I would hone my skills in that area until I got better at it. Same with duck calling, same with goose calling, same with shotgunning, same with blind concealment, scouting, decoy setup. I wanted to be good to where when I went on TV and I said, hey guys, this is my decoy spread. This is what we did this morning. This is why we were successful. I wanted them to come in real life to a seminar or do a hunt with me and say, man, they really do apply those tips and tactics Mm -hmm. and techniques and they really do have success and get people involved in the sport that way that there is a right approach. Not because I got a hundred thousand likes on a picture because I look like David Hasselhoff. I want, and I love the Hoff, (laughs) but I want, for those girls sake, I want them to have the same opportunity to develop themselves as a true huntress, a true fishers, fisheress, (laughs) fisheress, princess fisheress, but I take them serious. Mm-hmm. I want women to be badasses in the outdoors. I got a friend, Katie Stanley, that won the Women's Junior World Duck Calling Championship in Stuttgart, Arkansas. You put her in the duck blind, she's going to smoke ducks. You put her in the coyote stand, she's on dead dog walking, killing coyotes with her dad, Dave Stanley. One of the best, I call him the renaissance of the outdoors. Her brother, John David's placed seven times in the top 10 in Stuttgart in the World Duck. You know how impossible that is? Seven times in the top 10. That's you know crazy. how close the top 10 are? So I look at this girl and I'm like, is she beautiful? Yes. But... She's a freaking killer. She came up in the outdoors. Now, again, I don't want to assume that these hot chicks on Instagram that are getting 50,000 likes, Randy, aren't killers. That's why I just want to see a little proof for their, for their benefit and for ours. I want yep. them to be taken serious as huntresses. And I don't think it's wrong to say that. No, I, think, I don't I think want it's this important to be for our industry for, I, for that. By no means was this meant to come off sexist. Cause I'm not, yeah, well, I want women to be involved in the outdoors more than anybody. I want them to buy everything that we buy. Yeah. And at the end of the day, man, the other, the flip side of that coin is honestly, it doesn't matter if you're a guy, if you're a girl, it doesn't matter who you are. And it, it, there's nothing against getting into the sport at any age. You don't have you don't have to start as a as a young kid like we did or whatever. There's nothing against getting into the sport later on in life. But the thing about it is is I feel like if if you don't if you don't have that as far as the longevity in the industry, show that transition. Show you don't have to know everything, but show that process of learning. Don't come in and not know anything and all of a sudden portray that you know everything. There's nothing wrong with not knowing anything. But just be transparent and let people know. Let your audience know. Show them that p- progression. I remember uh, just an example. I, it, one that sticks out in my head is I remember when Mark Drury kind of introduced Taylor and, and started showing her progression as far as what she was learning as a bow hunter. I thought that was so cool because he basically documented that whole transition. And I thought that was super cool because... You know, and it doesn't matter what, like I said, it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter when you start hunting. But if you come into the sport, at least have enough decency to be transparent enough to not try to portray that you already know everything. And, and on the other side of that, though, that not everybody has the juries with a video crew and a video production, a successful hunting business, all the way from their DVDs back in the day, which are arguably the best ever, maybe besides the Duck Commander DVDs back in the day in the industry, yes, she has a, a head start of her dad being able to document that and put it out there to the audience to get to to gain her credibility 
faster. Some of these girls that are in these pictures on Instagram might not have the means to do that. So the question is with these manufacturers is how can we be creative in showing that this isn't just a pretty face? Because I don't think the girls want to be taken as just a pretty face. I think that would piss them off more than anything. What if I went up to one of these girls and said, you're just a hot chick with a dead deer. That would piss them off because they could probably hunt me under the table, but we don't know that. Yeah. I know that Michael Waddell could hunt me under the table because he's shown me for years that he's got it. Now, that is saying to them, there's got to be ways to do this. Is there ways, instead of just taking a picture with your makeup on, looking hot, I don't know if you killed that deer or not. I don't know if you caught that fish or not. Because we all know how easy it is to pick up the fish that somebody else just caught and take a picture and go, hey, we're on yeah. the river today. I think it, I think it goes back to, to using more raw content, man. Like, like show us who you are without that makeup on. Show us what you're doing. You know, I, I don't know, man. We want to see the real person. Is there somebody out there doing that? I can't think of any right know. now because, and I don't follow a lot of these girls. I've seen a lot of it and I've had discussions about it. Not a lot, but I wonder if there are some people out there, these girls that are gathering content of, of what they're doing in a, what you call quote unquote raw fashion of, of honing their skills. Um, I've, I've seen girls become ambassadors of, co- of companies whether it's a boat manufacturer, a gun man, like Julie Golub, she's won more handgun titles than any woman in woman in U.S. history. She is a total. I've hunted with her. She doesn't get. Go on to Julie Golub. Go look up Julie Golub Smith and Wesson. She used to be with Benelli. She's with Federal Premium. Go look up Julie Golub and you look at her accomplishments as a woman. Look at the voice she's had, the book she's written, the trophy she's hung on her wall, the NRA board of directors, the, the, the reputation that she has. Go look at what she's done and then go look at how many likes she gets on a freaking picture on Instagram. There ain't many. She might get a thousand. She's yeah. beautiful. She's as gorgeous as they come. But here's the deal. Where is this girl over here that's a supermodel getting all these all this notoriety when you got Julie Julie Golob over here who's been the voice to so many kids and so many she's made me be, want to become a better handgun shooter when I when I watch her shoot a shotgun at geese in Colorado I was like good night like she's a killer <laughs> just stick your gun up but she doesn't get fifty thousand likes on a picture what what's going on here that's um, there's so many questions that go on in my mind and I might have a sick mind I don't know I'm just trying to think out loud right now that. Why isn't Julie getting 50,000 likes when she's the real deal? And I don't know if this girl over here is the real deal. And I want that girl to have all the credibility in the world. And she owes it to herself, to her fans, to her followers, and the manufacturers and the companies that are hanging their flag, letting her fly their flag, you know, hanging their brand on her. They owe it to themselves and their customer base to show, hey, this ain't just a pretty face. We don't expect you to go buy this handgun just because she's hot. Julie just won the Bianchi comp for the 30th time or whatever it is. Just like Doug Coning has. Doug is a, you know, oh, Doug, yeah. Oh, yeah. there's badasses they come, but Doug doesn't get a thousand likes on a picture. He doesn't get that many views on a video. So it's just so weird how you can become quote unquote, again, I use quote unquote a lot. I apologize, <laughs> but Insta famous. What in the freak does Insta famous mean? People are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year when they can fake it. And I don't want them to fake it. And I don't say that you don't need to prove it to me, but at least do yourself the honor of making sure that you're credible enough to pose for that picture and sell that product and say that you're an ambassador of that brand. That's all I'm at. That's all I'm trying to say. No, I agree. Am I off base? No, I think you're hundred percent right, man. Because at the end of the day, I think both of us are on the same page as this industry. It it's like I said, we keep going back to it, man, but it's, it's our livelihood. It's what we have. And we want to see the longevity of it. We want to, we want to see it succeed. 
And because right now, honestly, man, like it, the industry, it ain't no secret. The industry's been a little bit in a rut the last few years. And we need to figure out how we can pull out of that rut and how we can grow the industry and get it back on the right track. Are we doing those things? I don't know. I, I mean, I see some stuff that I don't, I don't think we are. To well, a certain I'll, I hope the day doesn't come where I sit down in a meeting with the director of marketing or a vice president of marketing for one of these companies. And they said, Hey, uh, you know, so-and-so she's getting 55,000 likes a picture and you're only getting 4,000 likes a picture. And I look at him with my jaw on the ground, like, Whoa, it's really, ha- I hope that doesn't happen. But the way that social media is and the importance of content delivery and the way that people are getting their content now, it's happening right before our eyes. Oh, 100%. So how long is it until somebody compares your social media to a hot chick? I think it's already happening. It is. I think it's already happening. Oh, it is for sure. And I don't mean to say that they're just hot chicks. I'm saying that women are beautiful. I love them. I respect them. Okay, you had dinner with my mom last night. You saw all the girls around our family. We respect women. I'm just simply saying... We're going to be compared to that someday. And I do not have the ability as a 43-year-old man that has a pretty average badass body. <laughs> I don't have the ability to go out and draw those numbers from a, from a male crowd liking my pictures because of the way that I look. And all I'm asking is, are all of those hearts on Instagram being lit up on Miss Instafamous because of her looks or because her credibility as an outdoor woman? That's all I'm simply asking. That's it. <laughs> Into discussion. Peace. Time to transition. <laughs> I'm transitioning into the next thing that I wanted to talk to Mr. Randy Birdsong, Headhunters TV, Outdoor Channel. Season 8 is getting ready to come into fruition in this July 2018, third and fourth quarter, again on the Outdoor Channel. Find it on all of your cable outlets, whether you're on cable or whether you're on satellite service. The Outdoor Channel is available out there. You can also find his content on Mo TV, which is the uh, application, the app by the Outdoor Channel, where you can find a lot of content from Headhunters TV as well as the Foul Life. Little, uh, I'm going to give myself a little plug there. But today's podcast is brought to you by all of our friends at Jack Link's Jerky, the best in the business. You got to have snacks, like Randy mentioned before. And I'm transitioning right in because I've spent the you know quite a few days, and this dude loves his food. Last night, my mom made a, a banana bread with homemade frosting, and he literally lost his mind. He was taking pictures of it for Snapchat and Instagram. He only got like 70 likes on the Instagram one, I think. That was a joke. Um, but he literally loves his food, and he's a he's a connoisseur of fine food because my mom can cook, and she made some uh, chicken dishes last night and some, uh, you got to admit, that banana bread's badass, right? Yeah, it's number one in my heart. So right would now. you wrap some of that up in a Ziploc and oh hope that the God. frosting doesn't fall off for your blind bag? Or what do you carry to the woods? If I open up Randy Birdsong's backpack after he climbs up, let's say that you climb up into that tree stand and you forgot your backpack and I just come along and I take it and I get in my truck and I open it up. What's going to be I'm a it? snack man. I mean, anybody, anybody that goes with me knows that they're not going to go hungry. And I've always been a little bit of a PB&J. I like a good PB&J, man. If I'm going to go to the tree stand and I'm going to sit for a while, you can guarantee, number one, I'm going to have a PB&J. I'm probably going to have some peanut butter crackers. I love peanut butter. What happens if a deer walks by and you got to do that? You can't do that. It would sound, how would it sound with peanut butter? So, like, you can't do that. You can't eat peanut butter in the deer. It is kind of soft. You don't get crunchy because you don't want that deer to hear you bite down. That's right. Deer hunters are so crazy about the, what time they go to bed. We talked about this last night. Like, deer camp and duck camp, the last thing an outfitter wants to do 
in his right mind is mix the two because duck hunters are going to be up till one in the morning playing poker and having a cold one. Deer hunters are in bed at seven o'clock with their clothes in an oxygenated bag or whatever you call that stuff, spraying down. And you know what I'm saying? That's a total different I know exactly what you're saying because deer camp, normally we're in bed by nine o'clock every night. A couple years ago, we went down to Arkansas. We were filming a duck show down there and we were in a duck lodge and they had a rowdy group of guys in there. Man, we had been on the road deer hunting for a month and a half. We were all wore out. We got in there, and these guys were just hooping and hollering. It was like 1.30 I in the morning. I bet you they were Cajuns, huh? I don't know, but I was, I was screaming some Midwestern language to them. I can guarantee you that, man. I, was, I woke up, and I was just, oh, I was hot, boy. But, yeah, it is, it, it's, so much, it's so much different, man. Like you said, it's just a, the, the deer stuff will, I don't know, it wears me down that the, the Midwestern rut will, will take it out of you. But yeah, I, I don't go to the tree without some snacks. You can guarantee you that. And so you said PB&J, but what else? You got peanut butter crackers, you got PB&J. I'm kind of a sweets guy. I usually have a little bit of chocolate in there. I, I love those little... I love those little fun size Snickers. You told my mom last night fun size Snickers. Oh yeah. You you told my mom last night that you do have a sweet tooth. I don't. I mean, I I don't say that I don't enjoy it, but I just when I when my blind bag is I I, I love jerky. I love sausages. I love summer sausages. Um, you know, we with a duck blind again. You don't have to have your scent control because ducks come into the wind. You're literally shooting at them when they're downwind of you, so we all know that they can't smell. <laughs> um, so we'll have a Traeger going. We'll have biscuits and gravy going in a cast iron. I'm so jealous. We're cooking breakfast. We're cutting up. We're hooping and hollering. And you know what? I want to talk about this more in a little bit, but that's the difference in, in, in kind of that, that approach in hunting is that deer hunting and turkey hunting, you're by yourself. Your back's up against the tree. You got to find a lot of t- things to do to keep yourself busy or occupied and focused. You got to stay focused. You got to be listening. You got to make you gotta sure be on point. you got to be on point because that deer can appear out of anywhere at any time with ducks. You know, you're ribbing and joking. Your eyes are always to the sky. You're watching or you're listening for the, or you're looking for those, you know, those ducks to start calling out or whatever. And that's what I really enjoy about being in the duck blind is, is that camaraderie that cutting up the mentality of a deer hunter, the mentality of, of, you know, even all the way down to your water bottle, you got to just twist it off so slow and (laughs) meticulous. You just got to be so quiet because you don't want Mr. Whitetail to hear. That's right. And they do. Their senses are awesome. And you, you ask yourself, would I be able to make it as a deer hunter? I don't know myself if I would enjoy it as much as you do. I like different aspects of it, but to me, hunting is about camaraderie as a deer hunter. There's very little of that in my opinion. Now I'm not saying there's not, and I'm uneducated on this and I need you yep. to educate me. You say you go to bed at 7 a.m. 7 p.m. And I, you said nine, but I know it's like seven. <laughs> you don't even watch Pat Sajak and Vanna White on Wheel of Fortune. You're already in bed, but where's the camaraderie at? Why think, is, why is it so important? Because you're by yourself most of the time. Yeah. I, I think you're by yourself as far as on the hunt, but I think there's a lot of camaraderie that comes around the camp atmosphere and just the whole deer camp feel, you know, when you get, it's a, it's the same thing I think that you experience in the duck blind that when you're actually on the hunt, but with deer, I think you're experiencing that, that same feeling and, and that same kind of tradition outside of the hunt and, and every part, every part of the trip that's outside of the actual hunt. I know, you know, for me, man, like growing up, I, I loved, I loved deer camp and that feel that you get when you get all your buddies around and your family and, you know, you get back from the morning hunt and there's biscuits and gravy on the stove and, 
you got, you know, you got your grandpa or, or one of your uncles or one of your buddies dragging in a deer and everybody's out there, you know, kind of celebrating and seeing it go up on the, on the meat pole. I think just that growing up around that and that tradition and that atmosphere of, of a good deer camp, I think that's what, you know, just sets the fire in me and keeps it there. And I love that answer because I always talk about camp and there's no better place in the world I don't care if it's Italy, the Riviera, Barcelona, Russia, the Caribbean, the Florida Keys. I don't care where it's at. There's no better place, in my humble opinion, than deer, than duck camp, USA, yeah. deer camp, USA. I love being in hunting camp. And it's better to me than a KOA campground. It's better to me than just going to Well, you're surrounding yourself around people that's like-minded, that, that is, is there for the same reasons that you are. And I think that, at the end of the day, is what... It, it's what it's the glue that keeps everybody together, and it's the glue that that makes it as fun as it is. Because, like you said, you you got that camaraderie around all your best buddies, and, and your and your family, and your friends, and just everybody that is there doing it because they truly love it, and, and that's what makes it fun because it means something to everybody. Where's your favorite state to hunt? I mean, I think my favorite state to hunt is always going to be besides home. Well, besides home, okay. Probably New Mexico. You were gonna, you were gonna say home because I, I was know, gonna say home. Yeah, just just because I mean, there's which something. is where again? Missouri. Okay, so besides Missouri, you're at New Mexico for yeah. whitetail. No, no elk. Oh, elk. I That's love. Your fa- oh man, I love elk hunting. There's no whitetail in New Mexico, is there? No, I don't think they got any whitetail. Mule deer. Because you got Texas up against that. There may be a few, maybe in like right up on the border of Texas. I'm not for sure. But mainly, mainly you're dealing with mule deer in New Mexico. But I, I'm on the, I like the elk side of things, man. Why? Because you can call in the vocalization Yeah, just because there's so much interaction. You know, you know how much we like to take. Great answer. I love that word interaction. Yeah, there's so so much interaction between, between you as a caller and a hunter and elk. I I love hunting them during the rut with a bow. And, uh, you know, everybody knows that Nate and I love to turkey hunt. And, and to me, elk hunting is the closest thing to turkey hunting, except you're dealing with an animal that may have 350 or 400 inches of bone on top of his head. That could kill you. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's just, it's so intense, man. And you like, follow Joe Rogan? I do a little bit. That's got to be the reason why he loves elk hunting so much. Him and Cameron Haynes and that whole crew. like Yeah, and I think they're really into fitness, you know, and, and, and working out and stuff. And, you know, you get on some of those mountain hunts, they can be pretty extreme. So I, you I would tend take to, an elk hunt to, over a tree stand deer hunt? Oh, 100%. Really? Being oh. from the Midwest like you are, you're going to go 100%. for an elk hunt? Hundred percent. That's interesting. But I think I think a lot of that too, though, comes from getting brought up being out in the mountains. And like I said, my dad started taking me out of school and taking me to Colorado every year when I was seven years old. So so getting kind of introduced to the mountains and that side of thing and the elk hunting and just that that whole overall hunt is uh, I think that's what really really set the fire in me. And, and I mean, like I said, I, I would trade, I would trade everything, hunting everything else there is just to chase elk during the rut. You feel the same way about wild game, culinary wild game and eating wild game is the elk your favorite or would you prefer a, a deer backstrap? No, elk, elk's my favorite. Wild yep. game. Yeah. Hands down elk, elk, elk no backstrap. Question. Have you had moose? I have. Have you had axis deer? I have. It's better than axis deer. I'm I love not, elk. I love elk too. I'm just wondering. I've not, what, I've not ate a ton of, uh, I've eaten a little bit of moose and a little bit of axis, but not not a ton what about duck you like to eat duck i do yep 
You do, even do. though most people hate it, they despise it. I'm just like, are you nuts? No, man, I, I, mean, I think I think wild game is. I, I think it goes back to to how it's prepared and how it's cooked. I think if you, I think if you if you know how to cook it, I think that you can make about anything pretty good. Wild turkey is one of my favorite too, man. I love fried wild turkey and grilled. I can't stand it. What? I mean, I'm not saying I can't stand it, but I'd much rather eat a. And I don't even like pheasant that much. I'd much rather eat a duck than an upland bird. With the really? way that with the way that I prepare it, like I, I've had wild turkey in every way, and you can, there's nobody that can persuade me that a wild turkey tastes better than a pin raised turkey. There's just no way. When an elk tastes way better than me than a regular you know regular steak, regular sirloin or off right. a beef. Um, there's just something about wild turkey that, and I've had it prepared. I've taken care of the meat. I understand that whole process. I'm just not a huge fan of the the strips and frying them and flash frying them and heating up your Have oil. Have you ever made poppers with them? I've made poppers with it. But again, I don't eat cream cheese. You got bacon wrapped around a popper. You got a bell pepper in there. You got all these different tastes. I'm talking about a mallard breast off the bone onto a grill. You, you clean it a little bit, but I'm not talking about aging it. I'm not talking about marinating it. I'm talking just a little bit of seasoning on it and you cook it right. To me, that's wild game. And I, I love being creative. I'm not taking anything away from that at all, Randy. I'm just saying that you could make coyote taste good with bacon and cream cheese, I bet. Now, again, it'd probably be pretty tough. But, you know, a guy like Steven Ranella, and I just saw a post by Rogan yesterday, he's having problems with coyotes eating his chickens. He said, he made a proclamation that if I kill one of these coyotes with my bow, that I'm going to put it on the Traeger and eat it. I read that and I'm like, whoa, oh, that's man, a, that's, I want to see that. That's, 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 that's pretty bold. That's yeah. a bold statement there. But about Rogan, like he posts all these videos and pictures of him eating elk meat and preparing it in different ways and eating it with jalapenos and, and different lettuces and different vegetables and uh, we go back to that girl talk we had about the girls and the credibility. Joe Rogan's a comedian. He used to host Fear Factory. He's the voice of the uh, color play-by-play for the UFC. Very, very credible in all of those areas, but he was never credible as a hunter. And he talks about that, like what you said, of showing that process, the yep. humility of Cameron and, and Stephen Ranella and these guys that get him into it and taught him. And, and I, I love that. I man. love that too, love seeing it. that new voice come in. Yeah, and, and he's like 53 or 51 years old, and he's like, eaten up with hunting and conservation and cooking it and serving it to his family. But but getting back to that, that showing that progression, to me, that is what is going to help build our sport, man. Like, because I, I feel like, I feel like what that does is it shows somebody that doesn't know anything. It shows somebody that's maybe on the fence about getting into the sport. I, I feel like that, that in itself of showing that progression of somebody that didn't know anything, but showing that they can do it. And, and the progression of, of from going from not knowing anything to being a successful hunter, I, I feel like that in itself is what gives the confidence that some people that may be on the fence needs to, to take a, a leap of faith into the industry and take a, a leap of faith into the sport of hunting. I agree. I agree 100%. I, I, think, I think that that in itself, and that's, and that's what I was saying about, I don't care if you know anything or you're an expert. I, I'm not going to hold... I'm not going to hold anything against you just because you don't know anything. Honestly, I think that's pretty cool if you don't know anything and you want to get into the or get into the sport. But show us that progression. Show us that progression. Don't just dive in and all of a sudden, you know, you're Chuck Adams. Yeah. Well, the and that's the, the thing about Rogan is the way that he's done it is that he's used that approach of showing the raw, of showing the uh, the education process, showing that venture, that experience. He's a smart dude. He's very smart, and he did it the right way by letting the mountain humble him. He was humbled by how hard it was 
the education part of it, the techniques, the platforms, the way that you can uh, voc- you know, communicate with elk, the way that the elk herd interacts. He's always trying to break it down on, on herd bulls and, and satellite bulls and their cows and how they, how, how it's like a, you know, a, a football locker room or, or a high school, you know, there's different analogies that you could use, but he let the mountain humble him in a way to where he presented that hunting experience, that wild game experience to his audience who might be very liberal. He might have a very liberal following. They, they don't know anything about they, There might be on. a lot of liberals that go to Joe Rogan's comedy shows. 100%. And he's out there on social media on every day. We need people like that. That, that is voicing, hey, I, I'm not making any excuse for being an archer or, or killing an elk and cooking an elk. I'd rather eat this organic meal any day than going out and eating something that's been stuffed and shot up with enzymes and, and, and all the things that go on in, in, in chicken yep. and beef in the, in the supermarket. So I think that that's a great voice. Yeah, and it, go, and it goes back to what I was saying a while ago, that you can take 100 different people and they're going to come from 100 different walks of life. They're going to do things 100 different ways. But as long as they're, as long as they're promoting it and showing it in the right way, it's important for all of us. And just like just that example of Joe Rogan is a is a great example of that because he's he's not the same dude that I am. He's not the same dude that you are. He just got into hunting. He's learning all this stuff, but he's out there promoting it in the right way to probably an audience that you or I couldn't get to. So it's important to have all those people, man. That's I, I, it's very important. I agree 100%. And I think that he his humility and the way that he has said, "Hey, I am a celebrity. I, uh, I sell out every comedy show across. He doesn't say that, but you see that he does. Yep. And he never comes in and tries to act like he knows everything, but he showed that process of becoming a better archer, of becoming a better hunter, of becoming a better wild game, you know, culinary expert, no not doubt. expert, but just somebody that can prepare elk to serve to his family. And I think that that's what it takes is that you show that humility side that you're not bigger than the mountain. You're not bigger than the duck. You're not bigger than the elk. Yes, we are. We're advanced as humans. We're advanced as hunters these days. We have the ability and and we have the advantage in a lot of different oh, ways. Yeah. You could kill an elk at a thousand yards if you chose to right now. Mm-hmm. Not that that's hunting in my opinion, but I, again, I, if you do that, fine, but you better not cripple a bunch of them. Um, I think that we are advanced in the way that we do things. So the more humility that we can show of that we are blessed to do this and not entitled is the secret. And it all theme goes back to that theme of that kid coming up to Randy Birdsong or Nate Hosey or Chad Belding or somebody and saying, Hey, how do I get in the industry? And how do I become the next Michael Waddell? I think that, there is a way to show that process and to network oh, yeah. and, and to build that foundation and that, that, that humility and the, 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 the honor and the respect for the mountain and the woods. And if you get that part of it and it's, and you don't take the approach of I'm going to get every sponsorship dollar in the world because I killed a limited ducks every day for the last 10 years. I don't give a rat's ass. I want you to understand what being in camp means, what being in that boat means, what being with your dad. I, I mean, what being I, a hunter means. Be, but what being a hunter and a gatherer and a conservationist means. And I think that you get it. That's why we've hit it off. I'm not saying that I've always gotten it, but I, I pride myself in trying to grow as a person. Well, I think on a everybody, basis. everybody evolves as a person. I, I, I think that, you know, the same way with me. I mean, I, I'm not going to say I've always done everything right. Uh, everybody makes mistakes, man. And but I think that I think you evolve as a human being the older the older you get, you know, the the longer you're out there and, and the more you learn about being a hunter and, and, and what being a hunter means. And uh I I think, man, I, I agree a hundred percent with everything you said there. And I appreciate that and I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on the show. There's so many things about hunting and the outdoors and our common bond that we can go into. And I want to do another one because we haven't even really touched on Nate Hosey barely and his music and, 
um, and his ability to look like the ultimate warrior. <laughs> he's going to love hearing me say that all the time, but I love that guy. He's just awesome. He's just down to earth and I love him getting up on stage and rocking it, but we've shared some cool moments together. I know that we're going to share more. We could do this for hours and hours and that's, what's cool about podcasting. And that's why we named it. This life ain't for everybody. It's not saying that we're hunters and you, you better be a hunter or this isn't for you to listen to. We all live different walks of life. We all come from different walks of life. We all have the ability to be a mentor. We all have the ability to have a voice. If we do things right and stay morally correct and ethically correct, I think that everybody can come into this area, into this arena, into this circle, into this family and be part of it and grow. And I think that that's what being in the woods is all about. And I think that you've learned that from your dad and your grandpa and growing up in deer camp and duck camp. I've learned it in my short duck hunting career. I've been hunting my whole life, but I haven't been duck hunting that long, but I've, I've really learned what's important to me. I think in a pretty good timely matter. And I think that this life ain't for everybody means that it doesn't matter what you do. You could be a surgeon. You could be a pilot. You could be a janitor. It doesn't matter. It might not be for me. It might not, my life might not be for you, but we can find that common thread to sit down and look at each other from across the table and have an educated conversation and figure out some of today's issues and talk about them. Maybe not figure them out. Maybe not even, yeah, maybe not even try to solve the world's problems, but that's what this is about birdsong. And I appreciate you being here. Hosey's going to join us on the next one. We will be doing this again. My name is Chad Belding. This has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. We're excited for it. Um, We got some other great guests coming up. This has been a great two and a half hours I've got to spend with my good friend, Randy Birdsong, Headhunters TV, third and fourth quarter, outdoor channel. What's the website? Headhunterstv.com. Where can they find you on Instagram? Uh, Randy Birdsong or headhunter tv let's get them likes up ladies and gentlemen (laughs) insta famous this life ain't for everybody my good friend tom thank you my brother clay thank you for helping produce today's episode tom go ahead and hit that button for a little leith lofton what you gonna do when the money's all gone